Welcome to the World Wild podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and this podcast with Irene Lyon from the from the States is number four of a series, uh, which is loosely based around the polyvagal theory, but at any rate is exploring the nervous system and also elaborating on the theme, which I always kind of come back to, that of home and a threefold idea, which which works very nicely with with how our our nervous system um, kind of grounds well is is the basis for our our experience really um that we connect and can be at home in in our environment in our ecosystem and uh, in our relationships in the interpersonal sphere and we could also find ourselves at home in the body uh, so irene's work is all about helping people to reconnect with their body to learn to listen um to their body uh, as a as a sort of route as a as a method and a way for healing and whether that's healing of you know physical ailments or emotional or psychological problems, that's the kind of the, the way that she's working. Uh, but very much within the, the same framework of, of uh, understanding and working with the nervous system. Um, and that's in the context of, of this great wealth of, of research and information that's come out in the last 30 or 40 years that's really shining a light on that. Um, and um, I just wanted to say a couple of things that, that have come to mind and sort of reflecting on the conversation and just, just as a way to sort of set the, set the stage. So um, one thing is, and it's a theme that keeps coming up, the idea of making the unseen seen um, and looking at the, the, the idea that underground, you know, plants and, and um, well, plants have, have a root system and other organisms are under there with, with a very complex system that's never seen. Um, and yet, of course, what becomes uh, visible is what's above ground. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very useful and helpful to think about um, the fact that we have an unseen realm, which is working in, in, in a realm, obviously, that's you could say metaphorically is underground and obviously is unseen. But then the visible parts of our life um, crop up and, we, and you could say that they're, they're above ground. So the things that we say... Um, and make explicit sort of verbally perhaps and then our actions and our projects and procedures um, you, you could say are those visible parts and I've just been thinking about the fact that it's summer and now the flowers are out I mean some things have finished flowering are in seed but there's still a lot of things that are in flower I needed to get out and get some wood sorrel yesterday it's a lovely little uh, leaf looks a bit like clover so it's trifoliate with three little leaflets and, but the way you tell it from clover is that the leaflets have a heart shape rather than being like a tear shape that's almost properly round. They have quite a distinct little uh, bit that goes in at the top like, like a heart. Anyway, I had to get some in a hurry, so I couldn't drive out to some of our better patches. I, I know there's some uh, smaller amounts nearby, but unfortunately they had sort of crept back into the forest from the path. So where I normally could see them from the edge of the path and then just follow them into the forest. I had to actually go right into the forest and, and go all the way up and down near the path in order to discover this, this patch of wood soil, which was which still there. Um, and, and then I got what I needed. But the point that I wanna make is that if I'd have been doing this uh, just a few weeks ago in April or early May, wood sorrel is in flower. And I have discovered several patches of really, really nice patches of wood sorrel in the woods because it's in flower, because those little whitish, um, well, white, they're, they're white flowers with 
little lilac stripes, but they're highly visible. And of course, that's the whole point for a flower uh, and for a plant, not to attract uh, humans to come and eat the leaves. That's a bit of a sort of occupational hazard for plants in, in uh, putting flowers up, that they might attract the attentions of herbivores. But actually, the point of putting those flowers up is to attract the um, bees and other pollinators to come and suck the nectar and uh, trans help to transfer the pollen. So this is a way um, of, of, of becoming deliberately highly visible and attracting attention. And of course, you could take that further because flowers often put out uh, delicious aromas, which have the same effect uh, of attracting the attention of pollinators. Um, actually, as an aside, to, 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 uh, they sometimes put out rather unpleasant aromas to us, but for things like flies, um, which are attracted to the smell of rotten meat and feces, that, that some of these plants put out aromas more, more like that. But either way, these above-ground parts are deliberately um, attracting attention. And if you think about it, when we attract attention, we are also attracting or inviting engagement interaction and relations. So there's this beautiful dance between bees and flowers, obviously, where the, uh, the, the, the pollinators are coming, they're getting pollen stuck to their leg, they're moving to another flower, and they're actually um, making the, the, uh, the reproductive work of the plant uh, be accomplished so that there's pollination and the seed and the, and the fruit is, is then formed. Um, but that's really the thought I wanted to bring out, that the above ground parts of our life, the visible parts are there. Uh, to to um, allow this engagement, but that um, when we when we have a root system that's that's uh, that's not fully functional, um, that probably uh, explains a lot in terms of why the, uh, the 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 visible parts of our life, our activities, and our relationships to everything else, um, are not working quite right. And um, so I suppose where I want to go with that is just to, is just to draw out. Yet again, that there is all this work to be done around uh, making the unseen seen, because when we when we are conscious of our roots, when we are conscious, and in this case, we'd be talking about our felt experience, like in this, especially this particular podcast, where we're exploring what it means to to uh, be in touch with the signals our body's giving us, um, both about our internal world and the signals our body's giving us about our, the, the the external world. Once we understand those roots and work with those roots then all of a sudden it becomes much more functional that we're able to um, to relate in in the um, in the uh, the more visible realm of our actual contact with other other people with uh, our surroundings and all the other species and, and and everything that comes with that so that's that's um that's one thing i wanted to say and then the other thing i want to say is just related to trauma you know because obviously in trying to disentangle problems within the body uh, the topic of, of, of this conversation uh, today comes comes back to the fact that the uh, the misalignment of ourselves with our environment uh, is both the result of and the cause of, of of a lot of trauma. And so we have all of this stuff that we're walking around with, which means that we can't relate properly because we can't uh, have the right kind of contact with people, our surroundings, and our and our own body. But the point is, where does trauma come from? And that you could discuss um, and, 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 and reel off a, a long, long, long list of different things that could um, result in trauma. But I wanted to just discuss the fact that there's an idea going around that there's like trauma going back seven generations, which has um, an effect 
on people living in, in, the, in the current generation that things that's happened in the past uh, are being carried. And that could be something that relates to um, a lot of communities around the world that have been affected by, uh, you know, the invasion of European people in the, in the past few hundred years. And that's something that, that is, a, is a whole issue around um, how do we recover and how do we, um, especially, you know, we in, 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 in countries such as uh, United Kingdom or um, people living in North America, this stuff is right before you all the time. Um, how do we undo the effects of that trauma? Both those of us who are part of a race such as I am, where you know my ancestors have been involved in in, in a great deal of this stuff, but also recognizing that wherever you are, you um, are on the receiving end of trauma. So the colonizers that went out, it must be true that what 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 they did, which was so unbelievably insensitive uh, and and cruel and arrogant and uh, and greedy and selfish and all these things but like that very position to go out and behave in that way um has to be the the effects of of um of of, of trauma and the effects of a lack of uh, early experience which enabled um, people to become responsive and sensitive and empathic and then bringing it a bit more up to date in terms of uh, uh, those of us in, in in countries that were involved in the in the last two world wars, there's there's certainly seven generations between now and the second world war, and um, many more generations between now and and the first world war. So that if, those of us in those kind of countries have, have probably had um, grandparents and great grandparents who were killed in, in in both of those wars. We are all the walking wounded. And so we really do need this message about the nervous system and trauma. But uh, most of all, or, or at least, you know, very much, I think we need a message that says that, you know, the earth and the land um, is a big part of the healing of the trauma. And uh, I think there's perhaps a, a whole sort of second wave or another wave that needs to come through all of the, the, uh, the thinking about healing trauma and the body that, that involves uh, much more of an emphasis on um, connection to land, wild species, and other and other species. So I just wanted to sort of finish this off by revisiting again the um, story about the antelope that runs away from a cheetah and manages to escape. So what does it do? So the antelope's just escaped. It's the, 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 the cheetah's now nowhere to be seen. And what it does um, is it begins to shake. Um, and basically all of that tension of, of being chased and being in fear for its life comes out of the body. And the antelope then walks back to the herd and it finds solace in the proximity, the closeness of the other members of the herd. So the body has done something. It's reconnected to the body by shaking. And then it reconnects to the herd and co-regulates. So another level of reconnecting to the body and just feeling safe and social again but thirdly it begins to graze it just starts grazing um, and um, that act of of um, eating and chewing it's a response and a connection to the landscape that sense of being nurtured by the landscape and also the relationship to the plant the familiar smells the familiar uh, texture of the grass or whatever it is it's eating and then swallowing and, and feeling the um, the, uh, the compounds within the, the, the grass as it digests 
becoming part of the body. This is this is a third um, layer of reconnecting to the body by connecting to to something. So connecting to the body, others in the in your species, and um, and then to others in the sense of the land and and grass and 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 um, and so on in that particular example. But obviously, it points to for me the the real um, importance and the part that it plays in this whole picture. Importance of foraging so when we go out and gather plants this is this is part of what we're doing this is part of healing the wounds of trauma that we come back again to to a landscape to a mother earth if you like to the uh the nurturing and 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 the sustenance that's provided by um all of the vigorous you know that vitality of the plant growth around us which uh you know many times i've referred to you know that things like nettles and dandelions and the weeds that grow in the grass in the lawn, either in your garden or in a park or a green space near where you live, the land is is actually providing sustenance and nurturance to you. And that when we gather these things, it is it is profoundly soothing, um, and it brings a sense of connection and belonging. That you are um, an active member of the, uh, the 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 whole sort of species profile of the place that you live. You're not just passing through it, but you're stopping and gathering, entering into the life cycles of these plants um, by um, actually responding to their um, availability at different stages in their life cycle, whether that's gathering the flowers or the or the leaves or the seeds or whatever. And then you take those home and you you uh, sort of massage them into your um, lived experience. You know, just by cooking a recipe, they become part of your memory. They become a part of the emotional landscape of your life. Um, so that's the way I just wanted to um, round up the introduction to this this final uh, podcast on on uh, uh, of this current series on the nervous system. But one of the ways that we find our way back home and that we become reintegrated with our own body and our nervous system is to reintegrate with the uh, surroundings, uh, our wild ecology, by gathering and eating wild plants. Okay, well, that's it, um, and I will now um, let us get on to the conversation with Irene Lyon. So I've been, I've been catching up with a lot of your stuff, but it, there's, there's an interesting thing of how I know about you. It's just that, it's just that my sister um, is, sort of follows your stuff on, on the net and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is, we were having a conversation in which I was, um, I was exploring a theme of things unfolding. And I can't even remember what the conversation was, so in what context anything was <laughs> unfolding. But it was yeah. just, just like that this was a thing that things needed to unfold. Yeah. And for some reason, she latched onto that and said, you've got to listen to Irene Lyon. Now, I've listened to quite a lot of your stuff, and I still haven't found you talking about unfolding. So it's quite funny that the, the, the connection is not... <laughs> Other than the fact that it got me to listen to your stuff, but anyway, that's. Uh, when, you mean, when you say unfolding, how do you mean? Well, I, as I say, I can't actually remember what the conversation was. <laughs> how long ago was this conversation? <laughs> A couple of years ago. Oh wow! Okay. Mm. This wasn't just like last month. No, no, no. Interesting. No. Huh. So, um, yeah, no, I haven't got a clue. I mean, I, I can. I mean, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting theme because obviously that's what happens in uh, sort of natural life growth processes and plants and so on. You see yeah. that what's, what's happening is, is, um, is kind of 
well, it, it is unfolding, but there's like this potential within the, the DNA or the, the physical seed. And this thing is, is then coming out, you know, it's in there, but the right growth conditions enable it to come out. Totally. So um, I, I imagine it could have been something around that, that sort of idea being applied to us being you know, potential yeah. and unlocked up perhaps, but there's a way for us to unfold and become what we, what we might. You know, that's perhaps, we, perhaps we it. Hope, we hope that can happen. Um, but definitely, you know, it's interesting you say it was a few years ago that you were speaking to her and she mentioned my name. It's interesting when I meet people in my classes or workshops or wherever and they say, you know, I was told about your work or I remember watching that video and it, nothing, it didn't land. And then, you know, three years later, six months later, in a conversation with someone else, that topic comes up and then there's that kind of, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And then the person will dive in again. Yeah. And I think that there's an important part here around you can't push certain things. Yeah. Just like you can't, well, I don't know, maybe you can, but you can't force the natural growth process in nature. It just, it hap it, there's no person standing there, you know, giving it instructions. Yeah. It occurs. And um, I think that's something that's some of the more difficult things for um, people to learn is when they're working with the work that I do. And of course, I'm sure we'll get into that conversation, but we've been taught so much to say, though, this is how it happens and you got to follow these steps. And, but when we, enter into that there's a confusion because if the, the path doesn't go exactly how it was written out then a person gets spiraled into their shame their feelings of not knowing enough not figuring it out on their own and then it stops them and so there's yeah. this there's a, an organic process that really has to come when we're healing at this level of the nervous system and the body and the somatic system and um it's not something that just can be like clicked on like that. Yeah. Especially if we were not raised in a natural, healthy, safe environment where we were allowed to express and modeled, had good modeling through our primary caregivers, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, um, the one of the themes that we explore quite a bit on the, on the podcast is, is um, sort of contrasting, trust and control and, and also contrast in like machines and, and, uh, and organisms. And mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a fantastic metaphor that, that, that uh, me and my wife stumbled across years ago. We, we were looking into cultivating fungi. We never did it, but we, as a result, we engaged with this material by Paul yeah. Stamets on, on um, the life process, the, the cycle and, and the life process of fungi. And it talked about how the spores um, extend and produce these things called hyphae and then the hyphae join together and you have this mycelial mat. But the, the, um, the uh, fruiting body thing, what we know as a mushroom, never occurs until a very elusive set of optimal conditions prevail. And there's been some, some really, uh, what I find, um, very satisfying stories about people attempting to, to pin down various <laughs> wild species of fungi in order to cultivate them for mass production. And there's one in particular called the, the Chanterelle or the Girol, and they have got 
to the point of, of being able to produce a very healthy mycelial mat. So they can get the spores to do the hyphae bit, they join up, they can they connect mm -hmm. and make this mycelium. What they cannot do after years of research is find out what these elusive optimal conditions are, mm -hmm. which cause this, this uh, fruition to, to, to occur. But um, I mean, it just made me think of that when you were saying that this, this thing, this thing can't actually be locked down or pinned down. But if we enter into the um, the space where we kind of trust the process, yeah, that, that there's something beyond us that takes care of making sure those optimal conditions kick in, and then we will come through. But only, only if that, yeah. That's huge. That idea of trust, um, and it, it really is one of the toughest things to rock um at least currently is to trust what we're well feeling trust what we're seeing in our mind what we're visualizing um the emotions for example um and i was just actually just the other day also this is a good story i think it's a good story um i was walking near here where i live i'm on this point the this the ocean the inlet from the pacific and it's gorgeous and um lots of kids and parents out and there was one of those i think it's a here it's called a grate like where the rainwater you can see down yeah. and it goes up to the yeah, ocean yeah. and this uh, this child he was maybe five maybe four old enough to talk and comprehend language and mom and dad were there and i just i came up and and the dad was like yeah well that's where the octopus monsters live uh. and and the mom, I kind of looked at the mom because the kid was a little confused <laughs> and because he didn't, there was, it wasn't the child naturally saying, oh, dad, is that where the octopus monsters live? Dad was like, this is where the octopus monsters live. And the mother just kind of rolled her eyes and snickered at me, but you could tell she wasn't in alignment with that, that kind of education. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, I thought, I'm like, wow, it's amazing how much where is it where we can't just tell the truth? It's like, well, that's actually where the water, it rained last night and the rain comes in and then it goes and you see that big pipe out there going out to the water. That's where it takes all the da 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 da. And it just, it, it's, it's, you know, back to this uh, thing you said of trust and control. If what is causing us to not tell the truth to our kids and to trust that it's okay to just be simple. It's like that's where the rainwater comes from or goes and you can hear it. It's like, let's get down and hear it. And you know, if the child wanted to make believe that that's where the octopus monsters are from his own internal imagination, yeah, then that's another story. But then of course you have the situation where it'd be, oh, that's silly. That's not where the octopus monsters are. That's where the rain is. And then you have this weird dissonance, <laughs> right? And then just this morning, I was on again, I always go for a walk in the morning. There's another um, mom with her younger child, probably three. And they were just standing, looking at the vista of the ocean, the mountains. It's so beautiful here in Vancouver and the, the mount, you know, the, the city. And he was obviously looking and she was just telling him, well, there's the ocean. And then you see how there's those buildings and there's all the trees. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Oh, but then do you see the, over there, there's the mountains. Well, there's an ocean again behind that. And they were just sitting there watching. And I just thought, what an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, really huge contrast between, yeah. Huge contrast. And I, I, I think of these things and I, I, 
I start to, in my own mind, go into my map of where along the lines did that first dad, and it's not his fault. He just, that's just, that's how he's, how he is. Um, but where was it not okay to just be simple with nature versus the mom today that was just being matter of fact? And this is how it is. So I, that made me think of that whole trust versus control. And there's no script for that, you know, nothing wrong with octopus monsters and there's nothing wrong with water runoff from the street. And it's just the contextual way in which we might bring that into conversation with say a little person like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that other one's pretty edgy, isn't it? That makes you wonder what the dad's uh, motivation for doing that is, but yeah. My sense yeah. is it's, it's not that, you know, it's not, it wasn't pre-motivated by any way. It was just, you know, after that, I started to think about other ways that we trick and lie and deceive our, our young with things like, you know, oh, it, it tastes really good. You'll like it, you know, a new food that a child's never eaten. And so they're told, oh, I guess I'll like this the way I like spaghetti and meatballs. And then maybe it's something that doesn't connect with their system or their palate and they don't like it. Yeah. And then there's again this rift. It's like, and then they like, I don't want that. And then, but mom told me I have to like it. And that's again, another way in which we start to shift our preferences and what we feel is good to us inside. Yeah. Right. And there's so many examples there. Well, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, um, uh, yeah. So you saying to, to, to not, not trust or not listen to, to what we feel inside. Mm -hmm. And um, I've listened to you exploring a, a, a theme around just like that, what, what instinct manages to, um, well, to give, I guess, to, to, to give to um, other species, whereby mm -hmm. they are able to basically do that. They, they follow this, they just have a, don't know why, but I feel like I've got to go and pick this stick up and put it over there. Or, <laughs> yeah. No idea why, but. I'm just going to go with it, you know. Um, yeah. And, and then this whole complex uh, sort of fabric um, unfolds. So there we go. Um, mm -hmm. That enables that individual animal to really have an amazing connection with its surroundings, really functional connection mm. that where, where, where everything's taken care of and it's mostly stays pretty safe and also is able to uh, move with in and around the others of its own species all because it's just going with that little, I think I should do this now. Or when such and such happens, it goes, oh, okay, well, I don't know why, but in response to that, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and and we, we kind of have this sense of, oh, they're just dumb animals. Oh, and no. How, <laughs> how dumb are we when actually that's the foundation? If, if we're smart, that would be the foundation. If we can do something more than that, well, we're not going to be able to do something more than that unless we have that foundation. So, um, yeah, I just, I just wonder how much of, um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. What, you, what was, you had a question that almost came out. Well, just, just almost like, so, um, I mean, if you don't mind, I'll probably summarize what you do in the introduction. It's just that, um, yeah. people, cause I don't like to duplicate and there's loads of podcasts where you ex explain everything. So I'll just give a sure. quick, brief summary and we can get to the, the, the meat, if you don't mind, of, of um, oh, yeah. 
of, of, of where that leads you to be now. In the, in the, so what I was going to say is, to what extent do you think that the work that you do with, with people is actually trying to help them to just be a normal animal that, that is able to go with that instinctual stuff? Or, I mean, is, yeah. A lot. Yeah. A lot. And I think, you know, your example of the animal just knows to pick that stick up. And, and again, I use so many examples in my surroundings here. Um, I was watching a crow, you know, there's so many crows around us, but building its nest a, a little while ago before they're, before all the, the eggs were laid and the baby crows came, but it was just fascinating watching this, this bird know how to find the sticks, how to put them up there, how to find the, the grass, put it up there. You know, it's, there's no manual. They're not reading, they're not going to crow school. Watch, you know, this is how it happens, but it's, it's, in them in their dna and you know i'm not an expert at, at bird biology but my sense is they're not think, there's no thinking with that saying this is what i need to do next it is an inherent as you said unfolding so you know we have these animals that know how to do exactly what they need to do they come out of mama they're they're doing their thing the, the mother typically in the wild knows exactly what to do to take care of their young you know whether it's a they're they lick them with mammals um they keep them safe they keep keep them protected i think we can agree with that that's fairly uh global mm. with the animal kingdom um and so we've got these animals that just go they just know of course if you put animals in a zoo for example or you have domestic animals um, things can get a little messy in there because they don't have their natural yeah, yeah. ability to roam. And, and that's another topic. And a lot of the cues that they need to get it to unfold are not there. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so then we have the human and we have the, the I, I've been talking about this more and that we have the animal part of us and then we have the human part of us. And the animal part of us has that nervous system that is automatic, autonomic. It's the same nervous systems that reptiles and, and an other animals have in terms of the fight, flight, the freeze. Even with mammals, that social engagement ability to, to you know, turn your head and smile and mm. blink and do faces. You know, you can do that with a dog, with a cat. Yeah. Um, cows even they'll kind of look at you they're not as engaging but they still yeah. will look at you and they usually they're all like, fellow they're all fellow mammals yeah exactly cows usually look at you like you're crazy but that's <laughs> because they can see through us a bit more but um and so we have that social engagement wired autonomic nervous system <clears throat> thing going on for us as humans but then we have this higher brain thing up here that is huge compare in comparison to other animals other mammals mm. and it's so complex and with that complexity there's a reason why it takes us a long time to mature we have to come out of mom before our head gets too big or else it's not going to happen um and we're not we're not uh, mature within a few years far from it mm. we are still infants we're toddlers we're immature animals we are our development is so long and of course that development is 
different based on how our environment is. And so if you take a child and put them in a kennel, and actually, have you ever come across Bruce Perry's work? Dr. Bruce Perry, he's an American uh, I've not studied it directly, but I've heard quite a few people, in, including you, talking and talking about Bruce Perry. Yeah, so he's—I yeah. yeah. um, think he's still based in Texas, but he—he has his books are beautiful. One of them mm. is called Born for Love. One um, is called Oh my goodness, it's it's going out of my mind right now. Um, the boy who was raised as a dog. Right. That's what it was. And so in his books, he talks about the effects of adversity, the effects of neglect, the effects of not learning empathy and why that happens. And I've got, you know, there's so many amazing stories and, and, you know, there are some situations where if you put a human into extremely neglectful circumstances, like in an orphanage, he talks about that often. Um, locked in a room, which sadly occurs in some instances, and just the abuse that occurs in our society, in our world, that human will not have the, the, the social cues. They will not know how to take care of themselves. They will be an animal. They might, if they aren't talked to, this is the thing. If a human isn't talked to, it's not like the bird outside that I can hear chirping that just knows how to chirp and sing. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and again, I'm sure there's a biologist with, that would say, well, if you just left a bird alone without its mother, it also wouldn't um, survive. And I'm not sure about that because when I was a little girl, I had a pet crow, um, true story. Um, some kids brought this baby crow to the back of my dad's clinic. He was a veterinarian, is a veterinarian, retired, both mom and dad. And there was this, this little tiny bird that they brought to us and we raised it. Yeah. in our kitchen and it was a crow it knew how to do crow like everything and eventually when it got big enough we took it to the wildlife sanctuary he let him away I think my dad said that oh he might come back and I think I was so sad because I'd become grown so attached to this crow but that crow still developed even though we were humans yeah. Yeah. but if you were to take a human baby and put it in a cage with a bunch of crows or even a bunch of cats or dogs, it wouldn't be the same. Yep. And that is the yep. clincher. That's the, 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 the clincher with humans is that this higher brain is so complex. Complex isn't even the right word, Miles. It's like complex to infinity and beyond. I mean, look at what we've developed mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. with the technology um, I often joke that I'm still amazed at the copy and paste feature on the computer. Like, how does that happen? You know, how, how do we have planes in the sky and all these things that we've developed and engineered? That's from this. And so we have this higher brain and then we have our animal parts of our brain. When we're born, if we're given good nurture, good, good nurture, good nature, clean environment, healthy food, movement, activity, stimulation, boundaries, I mean, all this th th stuff that creates a healthy human, um, that human becomes mature in society, et cetera. I'm really simplifying this. But if that human is brought up with rules that are beyond 
what I would call acceptable, rules that are what we would consider micro traumas, conditions. I'll love you if you do this. You know, that emotion is not accepted in this home. That expression of your dance and creativity, which is part of this higher brain, that's not acceptable. You don't do that in this house. That's what you do at dance class. I mean, these are just random examples. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the things that I've heard my clients yeah. tell me that, that, you know, and so what happens with that is that that brain that has so much creative complexity and just amazingness is stunted. It isn't, it isn't developed in the way that it could. And then you put in the autonomic parts of how trauma gets stuck in the nervous system how that fear gets stuck in the nervous system. And then that compounds also the ability for that brain to not only create, but to develop and grow. Um, There's always differing opinions out there, but the last I saw that the human brain is still developing at age 28. And so this is where we get, I forget what the original thought was but yeah that that's how i see it it's this oversimplified version of it we can get into it more um but animals in the wild don't question how to take care of their young when they come out they know what to do yeah yeah and so yeah i mean this the 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 process that you're describing there i think um and i sort of locked in on this unfolding thing because it's helping me sort of follow it through um, or track it through. Um, you know, and there's a couple of things there. One, one, as you said about the animal in the zoo, that that, that yeah. then doesn't unfold, doesn't become. The instinctual thing is not able to, to uh, lead it on this journey because so the cues are lacking. But also in that situation and in the one where the child's been told don't dance here and whatever, mm-hmm. there's an attempted unfolding, which is then stuffed back inside kind of thing so yeah, yeah so it's it's like no you can't so that it gets locked in so the the full the full thing doesn't come out but also i've 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 been i've thought a lot about this this kind of zoo idea you know animals um in cages and so on mm-hmm. and um i guess it, i guess it, it it sort of came out because we've got guinea pigs and and we for a long time, we kept them not in cages in the garden, but yeah. holes in the fence, two of them got out and we never saw them again. So until I can sure. hack back to brambles and fix that fence, unfortunately they're in cages again. <laughs> but the, the, the interesting thing was we were, we were just watching all the different plants that they eat in the garden. And I was bringing plants that weren't in the, in the garden and feeding them to them. Yeah. And then when they're in the cage, of course they're totally reliant on either what's on the, the lawn and uh, underneath them or, or what we stick through the cages. And it made me realize, um, actually we're a lot like that because if, 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 if we aren't foraging in the wild or intimately connected with the, the, the sources of our food, we yeah. are like animals in cages, which the industrial food system is just stuffing through what it chooses to, to, to feed us. And mm-hmm. so if, if, if you see that the, the food is just one aspect, and that's just an mm-hmm. illustration of the whole situation, we mm-hmm. are in a zoo because the cues that we would have got as, as wild hunter-gatherers, there was no wall and no barrier, no mediation at all. And so 
the instinct within us to connect and relate to things outside would have caused a, a you know a profound kind of unfolding. Um, uh, so I guess I guess that's that's something that I'm very keen to explore. How you know what we start out with. If we if we see a person now, and like in your work, say, how can how can I assist this person, walk with them to become whole? You know, it isn't just the childhood trauma. It isn't just you know it's it's the industrial system that has actually locked us in cages, which mean we are not able to just develop our nervous system apart from anything else you know in order to in order to mm. be a fully a fully um developed human being you know as as in the species homo sapien what a homo sapien that's been let free to to have that two-way flow between itself and its surroundings what that would become you know we, we are not becoming that whatever that is now yeah we've become something that is <laughs> to use your word unfolding appropriate. But yeah, the, I mean, and I'm gapping on a quote that uh, one of my book mentors said, uh, Robert Scare. he's um, quite uh, connected with Peter Levine. He's a mm. medical doctor, psychologist, studies trauma. And uh, there's a term in our work called procedural memory. I don't know if you've come across that. But it's, it's, I'll break it down really simply. If a soccer mm. ball or in your country, a football is coming to my head on the pitch, and I see it, there's gonna be an, an automatic cover, right? right. Yeah. If yeah. I drop the knife when I'm cutting onions and I'm wearing bare feet, I'm gonna jump back. Yeah. There's a program, there's a, there's a, a instruction, a, a procedure that I don't even have to think about that just does that thing. And sometimes, we can't do that. Maybe the ball is coming and we see something else, it distracts us and then it bonks us in the head. We had no time to self-protect and defend. So that's a procedural memory. If we think of um, humans currently, and by currently I mean domesticated. So you mentioned the industrial revolution. Before that, there was the domestication of plants and animals. Not my expertise, but we know it happened. Um, we know that it shifted things dramatically when we stopped being nomadic and caging things and having plots of land. Um, but as we started to control in that way, and then of course industry came in, um, this was happening before industry, our expression of the natural impulse of those procedural memories it didn't just flick off like a light switch, it just it slowly started to kind of die. And so that child that wants to cry when it scrapes its knee falling off of its bike. I mean, I don't know if you've scraped your knee as an adult. I did it the other day or the other month. It hurts. I had forgotten how much it hurts to abrade skin on concrete. It stings. It, yeah, it hurts. You kind of want to cry. You kind of want to swear at yourself or at the situation. So if you think about that emotion that comes out of us, and then you think of a five-year-old, and you think, how is, how is that five-year-old interacted with when that occurs? Are they told, that doesn't really hurt. Just get up. Get up. Be a big boy. Be a big girl. Like, it's, it's not that bad. The moment we put that in, the moment we make those conditions, 
that's the procedural memory. That's the expression, the automatic expression, the unfolding, if you will, to use your word, of the biology doing what it needs to do to take care of that. If an animal in the wild is, is injured, it doesn't keep running typically. It, it, and it might get eaten. And then it doesn't have to worry about the trauma of that injury because it's now food for someone else or for something else, for another animal. But if it does injure itself, it will go into hiding before it comes out because it knows that it won't be able to protect young, themselves, hunt, et cetera, et cetera. So this, um, this loss, I guess you could say, of that natural impulse, it's very, very old and it's happened in in increments throughout the his, human history as we know and getting that back isn't easy and it's not easy when we've also had that that upbringing where the parent was like that doesn't hurt if we had that it's going to be a little harder because yeah. even if we had the parent that saw us fall so i'll give you that scenario because a lot of parents are like well what are you supposed to do when a kid right falls and again that shows it's no one's fault but that shows our lack of intuition on how to yeah. deal with that so when someone falls and granted it's safe they go through a disorientation process they go into survival they feel nothing but energy and sensation and pain if we try to scoop that child up or interfere when their autonomic nervous system is still processing that stress, we interrupt that procedural need to take care. And again, granted it's safe. If the kid falls on a road and cars are coming, you gotta scoop yeah, them up move and it. Yeah, yeah. them to the side. So let's, we'll be smart and know that there's distinctions there. But let's just say you're on your driveway, you know, you're on a cul-de-sac, you're on a country road, you fall, and so the parent sees this, you need to go to them, but you need to wait. You need to let the, wow, the cry, ah, the expression, just like if a lion is protecting, it's like, ah, they're not gonna hold back and say, oh, that hyena is trying to get my cubs. I better not, you know, frighten the hyena. Yeah. And so the child cries, wails. And if you let that child wail long enough, and you are there, you don't interfere, but you let them know you're there energetically. You don't even have to say, I'm here. They'll feel you because we're energetic beings. There's a moment where that child will finally look up with the tears and the snot, you know, and the red face. And as soon as they go to lock eyes and engage with you, that's that polyvagal social engagement. They've gone through this stress response the stress responses come down, they look, and then when they look, then that's the hands that's like, I'm hurt. And then that's where you, oh, sweetie, this must, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're, and that's where you then can say, you're okay. And yeah, let's get that cleaned up. Do you want me to kiss it? Do you want a hug? And at that point, if the kid says, no, I don't want a hug, you got to say, okay. But you know, there's this over, it's like the moment we, override their impulse were screwing up with their their consent essentially and then their impulses of saying no i don't want to hug or confuse because oh i said no but mom's doing it or 
or I want this. And, and so there's a very interesting dynamic when you just take down that kind of example of how to help the natural impulse and really the healing come out organically. But because I'm using the example of a five-year-old, they don't have the emotional knowledge on how to take care of that. And so we have to help guide and model that. And then the, the other piece to that is that's not a script that we have written. It's written in our genetics, but our conditioning has kind of bleached it out of us. Why is it that the, that scenario, if you use that scenario, why is it some families will know that intuitively and others won't? And it doesn't matter what country you're in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's because of, again, how was that a parent? How was that adult treated when they were young? Yeah. They'll have ideas on how to deal with that. I mean, I think it's interesting what you said earlier that, that, that there's differences with um, people around the world and how they approach childcare and so on. And yet there's, there's a more um, consistent thing with, other mammals they're, they're, because it's more instinctive. I mean, I think there is a certain amount of culture in these other mammals, but I definitely would agree that on the whole, it's coming out, out of instinct. I just wonder how much of what we have now is um, culture that, that, that's kind of falling into this category that you're describing, that, that people are sort of embodying trauma in the culture, so therefore traumatizing and, and it just goes on and on. Um, mm -hmm. Or, um, so, you know, the, 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 the point being that you, you could sort of walk away from this discussion and say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> leaving your kids to cry is, that's the culture if you, if you follow that particular school. And, you know, there is a culture of that because lots of people did it. So that's their culture. I mean, um, and on the other hand, you could, you could point to other things and, create a case for, um, well, actually, this way of raising children, yeah, it's our culture and we've got all kinds of practices around it and, mm -hmm. and nuts and bolts of how we work it out in this particular context, in this landscape or whatever. But this kind of raising children is in tune with our DNA. You know, because mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of argument we've got to be able to make, you know, that, that, yeah. that um, I mean, for, for example, just a, just a real simple point would be that simple kindness and, and a basic thing of responsiveness, that's in our DNA, you know, where's this mm -hmm. hardball kind of, you know, refusal it's, to it's, respond and, and then justifying it with some elaborate theory. It's in our DNA, but it also can get shifted based on our environment. This comes back to um, epigenetics and just how, mm -hmm. you know, just because you have a code in the DNA doesn't mean that it's going to express. Mm. It depends on how we're, how we're treated, what's modeled. I, I want to go back to the thing about crying because someone will have heard what you just said and they're going to get confused. So I want to just clean that okay. up. The, the example of the child that's five, for example, riding a bike and letting oh, yeah. him. That one you let cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Scream it out. You yeah. know, it's like rage, pain, hurt very different than a newborn infant who's screaming and crying and needs something that is a that is a that is a, a very touchy subject in a lot of pediatric uh, clinicians where you know it used to be yeah. crying it out was what you did to teach children how to 
become tougher and self-regulate. Now we know damn well that that is abusive and that is neglect. And there's a whole, there's generations. I mean, I'm sure my parents, I don't know about my mother. She's, she, I mean, again, this is where, depending on where you are, my mother's from the Philippines. So, you know, in a, grew up in the barrio, very simple living on a farm. It's different there because you, you actually have the baby on you most of the time, or there's always siblings in that. And when you're in the villages in the Philippines, you never hear an infant cry. You don't. Mm. They'll fuss, but then they're taken care of. If you see a child crying, it's because they've hurt themselves. Yeah. Right. And so there's just, there are differences in some, some cultures, societies, etc. But yeah, the, the crying it out, we know is just, it, it puts the child just to clean that up into a stress response. If they aren't suit, they aren't self-regulated with an adult that has um, a higher level of regulation on board. So that, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I'm glad you cleared that up. I could see how that could have led to a misunderstanding. So yes. um, but, I'm very careful about that. one. Yeah, no, well spotted. And, 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 but, but the thing, the thing there with, uh, I think it's really interesting to contrast the two crying situations because that, mm-hmm. that five-year-old is crying because it's something it's working out on its own. You know, it, it, I yeah. guess the, I guess the cry to a some extent has a function of making sure somebody in the tribe is aware there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. But as you say, the main thing is he's working out the trauma in his own body. And, and this is a, this is between him and his own knee basically. And, and, and yet that child, the, the baby, the cry is, is, is one function and one function only. And that's to tell you, I need help. Something's and, wrong. And, 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 and for us to adopt a philosophy that basically says that, you know, if you try, try hearing a child, a, a baby cry and, you know, you've basically got to shut down your instinct because it's a call and response. That child's cry is telling you, go and help your baby. Your whole body is saying, I need to go and help this baby. And now you're sitting there in the other room going, no, I'm not going to do that. Unless you're not, to, you know, I mean, this is, this is where it gets interesting because mm. yes, we would think that a parent hears the infant crying and there is that, that, Oh my gosh, I have to go and, and help them. But um, that's not always the case. And so mm. if the parent isn't attuned to their own biology and if they right. weren't attuned to when they were young, yeah. they're not going to understand. They may know something's wrong. And I've worked with clients on this with their infants where they, they know something isn't right and they can't pinpoint it. And it's not for lack of wanting to. They really are like, I don't know what this is. And, and at that point, and you know, it's like, okay, yes, you are, your intuition is correct. Something is not right. And let's try to figure this out. And, and then there's the, 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 the adult parent who it doesn't even enter that that's a problem because they're in their own state of shutdown, right? They're living in their own state of um, functional freeze or even more, more than that. Um, You know, I'll never forget. I have these vignettes in my, my life where I remember times where I hear babies crying and one was very particular about five years ago I was in a very warm um, drugstore we call it here 
in Canada and it was, it was, I think it was maybe even snowing. It was cold. It was rainy. It was freezing outside. So, you know, everyone's wearing all their gear and the babies are all dressed up in their stuff. And, and then I entered into this drugstore and of course the heat is just blasting fluorescent lights, all the smell of detergent, which I'm quite sensitive to as an infant would be as well. And I felt so, I, I was angered and I also felt sorry and sad for this mother who's screaming at her newborn baby mm. because the baby wouldn't stop crying. And she was doing something, she was getting something and it's alone, it's red, it's crying. And I looked at the child, I heard the cry and I could see the sweat. Like it was yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was hot. It's temperature. It, you, I mean, I can't regulate in the, I, I you know, unbutton my jacket and my hair's up and, and so she didn't, and again, it's not because she doesn't care and love that child. She just had no instinctual knowing of, oh, we were just outside, little ones all bundled up, red in the face. Oh my God, you're hot. Let me, you know, yeah. loosen up your clothes. No, no cue to that. And I don't remember what she was wearing, but chances are she was still bundled up. But at that age, we can we can shut down our physiology and what it's telling us. So there's this interesting spectrum where, yes, we would think that if someone is hearing their baby cry, that that would put them into, because it's supposed yeah. to put us into distress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, then we soothe them. And in soothing them, we as the adult also soothe. But if that cue is not there due to our own misattunement to our own biology yeah, we won't yeah. be able to tune to the to the little ones so that's where it gets dicey i think and i'm sure it's dicey on 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 thousands of fronts actually because you know if you if you think about what's happening with that mum she's busy mm -hmm. she's preoccupied yes and and actually yes. she's her anxiety level is 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 a big factor in the fact that she can't um listen to these subtle cues that are happening well not so subtle cues blaringly obvious cues like a baby's yeah. being red and sweating you know but i just i just feel that where we are um these days you know with most people so um out of kilter you know locked into into these sort of things preoccupation and too much to do and and one thing or another and the, the, the fact really that, you know, there is this amazing system that's in place, you know, in terms of ecology, the interpersonal sphere, our own bodies, you know, they're, they're just remarkable, extraordinarily subtle, finely tuned organic things, which, which mm -hmm. are able to take the smallest cue and make this little adjustment, this little response, this movement, whatever. Oh, yeah. and, and create this thing that makes sure that the whole thing is flourishing and thriving. Just to see how many um, of those subtle cues are just falling on deaf ears, as it were, on, or touching to callous oh. skin. What does yeah. that do to us? Because each one of those things is, is wanting to trigger a little adjustment, which is, means it's well for me, it's well for you, it's also well for the landscape, the whole thing. And we're, we're just going, can't hear you, sorry, can't <laughs> hear that, sorry, sorry. And that is the yeah. nature of our civilization, our so-called, I keep trying to find another word for civilization because our <laughs> uncivilization, you know, that's the yeah. nature of it. We're, we're deaf, dumb and blind. We, we, we can't be moved. Mm -hmm. what, what a mess. Yeah. It is. And, uh, you know, 
those cues that you mentioned, what, I mean, you pose the question, which is what happens when you don't listen to those cues? Well, this is what happens. Look at what's going on in the world. Yeah. You know, um, look at all the illness, all the chronic illness, the cancer. I mean, yes, that's also environmental. It's what we're eating, et cetera, but it's, it's not just one thing. No. And, you know, I, and I, I, I like my examples, but you know, the, the, um, do you know Gabor Mate? Have you ever yeah, come yeah, across? Yeah, yeah. So he's, I mean, he is so eloquent in his, in his descriptions, but he has this description about cancer, you know, and he's often said quite blatantly on, in talks, we don't need to do any more research in terms of human health, like other stuff. Yes. But health in the human being and the healing of the human, we don't need to know any more research. It's quite adamant about that. And I agree with him. Um, do we need to research how to make better prosthesis for people who've lost their limbs? A hundred percent. But in terms of chronic illness, et cetera, it's like, we don't need any more because we know it is a result of stress, chronic stress, adversity, misattunement to ourselves, to our environment, lack of connection to it, and just absolute empathy that is built when we have self-regulation, when we have that connection with a primary caregiver that really nurtures us. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I love that he said. The other is you cannot study cancer or the cure for cancer by studying the cell. You have or no, sorry, you can't study, studying the cure for cancer by studying the cell is like trying to solve a traffic jam, like a traffic jam on a, on a mm. you know, roundabout, yeah, yeah. Um, by studying the internal combustion engine. It, it just doesn't work. And so we're trying to bombard and break down the cell and study the cell and figure out the cell to try to figure out why are all these diseases happening and he's all about, and I'm all about, well, we have to look at the, the bigger picture. And so these micro sensations, the cues, even a person's ability to feel their own digestion is primarily washed out of people because they're not connected to the viscera, but we're also not taught to connect to the viscera. Mm -hmm. And if we are that, to use our little kid that falls off his bike example, you know, if that kid is shut down as soon as it's feeling its pain, that is one little drop in the bucket of him not knowing how to feel the sensations. And it just grows from there, Miles. It just keeps growing and growing. And, yeah. and over time, we, we get to be... Um, <laughs> My husband used a word the other day. I might get it wrong. Is it automaton? Like robots, just sheep, yeah, yeah, yeah. just going, going down the lane. Not even. It's not even about authority. Questioning authority. It's questioning our own impulse. And it's not because. And the reason why people aren't questioning their own impulses is they don't even know how to listen to their own impulses anymore. And that is some of the first pieces. When I do work with clients and students, we start with that. How do you start to listen to your biology when you've maybe never even considered it <clears throat> until that day when you get sick right that's kind of when people wake up to sadly it's like as soon as yeah. something is really bad then it's like mm -hmm. oh boy i better clean up my diet i better clean up my emotions 
And it doesn't have to be that way, but we tend to wait till the worst possible point and then we figure things out. Yeah, when you reach that crisis point. Mm. Yeah, the body literally, as Gabor would say, says no, it says it can't do this anymore. And yet that, that cancer, that heart disease, the, the thinning of the gut that leads to IBS, the, the, the tumors, all of it, it doesn't just happen overnight. It, it builds, it builds until the body can't take it anymore. Right. And, and so we're going around thinking that everything's fine, but actually it probably isn't again, granted, you're not connected to this system. Interestingly enough, when you start to connect to the system and you start to work with it, it can change quite quickly because it wants to be well, it's like the earth, you know, um, I don't, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but because of all the less emissions in the atmosphere due to people not yeah. driving planes, I, someone had said that the ozone has been healing, the layer has been healing, the waters are cleaner, the air here is so clean. Um, and it happened quite quickly. Yeah. But the earth also doesn't have that higher brain, to go back to what we were talking about a second ago, that's saying, wait a second, maybe you shouldn't do that. Right? That, that higher brain programming in the human is what causes a lot of people to have resistance, self-sabotage, they go back into their old patterns. Whereas the earth, as long as we leave it alone, it knows how to self-generate and heal. And our biology knows that too, but then we have this thing up here that's, that's getting in the way. So, what, yeah, one of the things I wanted to draw out, because I'm, I'm aware that it's, it's, a, it's a theme you explore quite a bit like the the fact that here we we are animals ah but then we're animals with this extra capacity mm -hmm. and you know that extra capacity has given rise to all of these incredible technologies but but on the whole um it's it's hard to find one of those technologies that that, that doesn't have an extraordinary downside you know in terms of affecting this lack of attunement, this lack of responsiveness and, and lack of exposure, you know, these things are, are basically creating layers of insulation, which means that we're not exposed to the, the cues and the signals in the first place, because we're so stuck inside literal buildings with walls, but also mm -hmm. the worlds that we create with our preoccupations with phones and, and whatever. Yeah. You know, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure you, you must have, and, and I'm really working on, on, creating uh, something that I can articulate along these lines as well. You know, what is the wonderful thing about humans, you know, that how, how could we, you know, I mean, you know, what could we be, you know, given, given, given that we have this, you know, and we, we know what we have been, we've been hunter gatherers and all the beautiful things about that, not to say it's perfect, but like, you know, <laughs> those societies did have extraordinary depth of wisdom and, and quality of life and, and, and beautiful reciprocal relation with the land far beyond mm. anything we can even dream of just now. But like, we, we can't go back there no. as, as such, you know, to that exact, you know, but, you know, I mean, you know, what could we be given that we are animals still, yeah. we're biological, we're not going to become machines, you know, but we have this higher brain capacity and this ability yeah. to use that brain capacity to, to relate in an incredible way, you know, so, so where, where, where could we be? What could we be? Well, I think if we take it to the nth degree and really look at that question, I mean, it's a great question. Where could we be? 
it's something that I think many wouldn't believe is possible. We think of some of the, the, the movies, so to speak, that talk about telepathy and utopia and beauty and people living in harmony. I, I believe, I do believe that we have that potential. What I've studied about the human system and, you know, we getting into other things that I tend to not talk about as much, but intergalactic civilizations and other places where I've read and, and witnessed, not witnessed personally, but just things are at a level where there is no, there's no competition. There's no even speech. We have this, and I, and I've worked with this, you know, the, this notion that we don't have higher powers than what we see here. I think really, I personally want others to start to look at. I've been studying over the past years. Have you ever come across Lynn McTaggart, the field? That's ring a bell to you. Did you ever watch the movie, What the Bleep? It was a documentary on quantum physics. Anyway, her, you know, she talks about in her books, um, one of them is called The Field, one is called The Power of Eight. She's a reporter and she just landed into this trail of studying the human capacity to have powers to intend things. Right. Um, and this was actually looked at a long time ago with the power of group prayer mm-hmm. and group intention. I mean, this is why we meditate, not, you know, people have group meditations globally now to help heal the planet. That's not just because someone decided, oh, this might be a cool thing to do. It's like, a nice gesture. Yeah. yeah. It's not just that. It's like when you look at the old research, which really got shut down um, from a lot of scientists, um, they had some pretty conclusive evidence that shows that you can intend and change things with your mind. I, I believe in psychic capacity, but when to be able to have that higher level means that the physical biology has to be well. If our system isn't working well internally, it's hard to get to those next levels of evolution, if we want to call it that. And so it's so difficult when all we know is struggle and strife and survival and paying the bills and meeting our rent payments and all these things. And, but I do believe, I hope that we can get to a point where we're about creation. We're about connection. We're like those hunter gatherers on the fields with our children, eating, foraging, foraging, hunting, dancing, creating art. We can't go back to that the way it was. Right. I don't think we're just going to bulldoze all of our homes and like, get dirt and start planting things everywhere. I don't think that's going to happen. However, what I have seen is that, yes, we live in these boxes that are homes and we're caged, but when we can connect with our biology and really work to get out of that survival, this doesn't feel as con- as like an entrapment. It actually, I, I don't feel in my home that I'm boxed, that I'm caged. You know, I can connect to the sky and the trees that I see up there. I don't feel like there's a wall here, but we see it as that. But if we energetically can connect with what is around us, we start to realize that, you know, not to sound too woo-woo, but I will. It's all energy. It's all different vibrations. And we can move through things um, and intend 
intend a lot of goodness. So that's kind of a weird way of saying my, my viewpoint, my vision is that we can be amazing as a society, as a humanity. And it, it requires more of us becoming what I would say regulated, regulated in our nervous system, regulated in how we connect with others, with nature, with animals, Peter Levine, one of my mentors who founded Somatic Experiencing, mm -hmm. he has said mm -hmm. many times over again, and he's a very spiritual man. He is into the energies. He's into archetypes and our ancestors and, and such. And he doesn't talk about it very much, but he believes in it. But he has said true human enlightenment will happen when all human beings on this planet have a regulated nervous system. That's a big statement right? Yeah, yeah. And yet if we have, right, if you just could drop into that, if that were true, there will be no violence, no war, no abuse, no abuse of our bodies, no abuse of the land. We would know how to raise our children and it would technically be utopic, whatever that means. Yeah. But, you know, it, but we don't know it because we haven't felt it. We haven't seen it in enough um, community. You know, we're still figuring out what community even is. Um, we're still figuring out the color of our skin and that we all are the same and yet we're still so divided. And so that's how I see it. I mean, I've just seen little yeah. glimpses. Um, I do hope that can happen. Um, it can happen. It's just a question of we need to reach kind of that tipping point where enough people wake up and go, oh, I'm not living in this matrix. I don't have to live in this conditioned program where this is exactly what I do and this is how I follow orders. Yeah. And and I don't mean orders from like the government. I, it's like an internal, the biology yeah. has been so structured around the programs that we've been taught. And it's tr it's a it's a very delicate beast to to heal well i mean to me it all comes back to the fact that when we're able to relate when we're able to touch and be touched you know which 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 i do think that the um the aspect of you know landscape that with with our biology is um necessitates that we have that reciprocal flow with our surroundings even if it's just seeing a branch of a tree moving you yeah. know we, we're used to seeing something along those lines all the mm -hmm. time you know mm -hmm. um for, for us to feel settled you know i mean i i personally notice how just going to the woods or something that is immediately i'm in i'm in another space you know this the, the, and, and what's happening is it's like having a person that smiles and nods Mm -hmm. or gives me a hug or talks in a very welcoming way. You know, mm -hmm. you see those, you're getting cues from, from, from your surroundings that are basically like that. They're saying welcome. They're saying, you know, you're here, um, you're with us, you're yeah. part of this. Yeah. It's not necessarily, you don't have to think that the tree has an intelligence and is talking to you, whether you want to think that or not. But like th this stuff happens on a, on a very visceral level that you mm -hmm. do feel. Um, and, and so those those kind of but that's just one of one of many kinds of yeah. cues the fact the fact that we're basically shut down and not able so the, the the you know the regulation thing is 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 a consequence of the fact that we're able to touch and be touched and and the sabotage is that yeah we 
we are not able to do that. We're not able to, to open to feel. And if we do feel, we recoil and... and, and, and it's scary. Like yeah, it's a, it's a so, scary thing. A hundred percent, you know, that nature is, well, we are it. Yeah, right? yeah. If someone has never considered that, I think it's an important place to start. Yeah, Because yeah. again, yeah. we've been industrialized, we've been domesticated, so we have forgotten that we are actually part of the organism of this yeah. planet and the yeah. universe. So that's number one. Number two, yes, there's a reason why when we go out and we're connecting in a conscious way, I'm, I'm always looking at this tree, that's where I'm looking, okay. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that the branches, the, there's wind. Like I can't see the air, but it's there's a movement. You can see the traces of it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's the clouds and they're shifting. But here's the thing: if someone is shut down or dissociated or in anxiety, they ain't looking at that because that is a level of social engagement that they don't have capacity for. And and so that's one piece. And then another interesting piece, because I know that a lot of people will listen to this and they don't have these beautiful trees and nature the way you might in your backyard. Um, and I've noticed with my students, like I have so many plants in my house, like tons and tons of yeah. them. And, and always when I'm with my groups over time, we will have at least a few people say, this is so strange and they usually live alone because a lot of people are living alone, not, not just because of the current crises, but they live alone. They're not partnered. Um, but they'll say, wow, like my plants are doing way better. Hmm. It's true. Like I have pictures of my students' plants that were once dead and now they're alive and they didn't do anything differently but their system is more regulated and they're attuning to their, even though it's their box of a home, the bit of life that is in their home and that organism feels it. And I think that, I mean, if that isn't enough of a, of a anecdotal evidence piece to show that we as humans have the potential to change nature, I mean, there it is. And, 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 you know, so there's the people that have the plants and they notice, shit, I'm not killing them anymore. They're thriving. And then there's others who are all of a sudden craving plants in their home and they're going out and they're buying them and they're tending them. And if you have plants, you know that you can't just water them on a schedule, right? You have to water them based on the environment, the time of year, every plant's different that's like the baby. It's attuning to a living yeah. organism and listening. So I think there's so many ways that we can reconnect to that, to that, even if we don't have the luxury of, you know, the ocean and mountains that I have here mm -hmm. in Vancouver. I mean, I think it's fascinating with the houseplant example, yeah. because, you know, uh, uh, at first I thought you were primarily, uh, I mean, perhaps you were, but I, th I thought you were primarily uh, indicating that these people energetically had, had boosted the, the 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 liveliness of these plants, so they're flourishing. But then it became clear that what you were saying about attunement. So these people being more well, they probably were just more sensitive to the needs of their plants on on maybe quite an obvious level. Like the, 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 I know. think it's both. I think yeah, it's yeah. The, I think it's the energy because when we are, you know, again, we forget we we are electric. 
beings, you know, that's how our nervous system works. And so when we have more regulation, a few things happen. We attune better to ourselves, so then we attune better to our environment. Many people will even say, oh, wow, I have an urge to clean my house. That's never happened before. I have an urge to prepare food in a way that's different. And I'm not telling them to do this. This is just an impulse that's coming out. So there's that regulation because they're attuning better. But then as you become more attuned, it's because you're becoming more regulated at the nervous system level. And the energy around the, the organisms that are alive feel it. It's the same with pets. Yeah. Um, man, I uh, growing up in the animal hospital that my parents uh, um, had, um, and literally when I was little, it was in our house for a while. Um, and then I became young. As I was older, I would work for them. And it was so clear that the nervous, frantic dogs, usually dogs and sometimes cats, you could just see it in the in the owner. You know, it's like it was it was out of this world and mm. as i've gotten to know more people in this work sometimes pets will take on the illness of the owner because they just do there are these energetic beings and it might be the only sense of connection that that owner has and we can transfer illnesses to people it's a way of it's called it's one of the fawning responses is fight flight freeze and fawn right, 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 right. and that fawning can happen in that way. And it happens even in homes with children where a, a child will intuitively in a weird way get sick because they know if I'm sick and meek, my parent will better, will have something to take care of. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very interesting thing. So yeah, energy is huge. Regulation is huge. It all connects to the same pot, so to speak. Yeah. So I think, I think it'd be great. To, I mean, if, if you could, Tell people basically what it what it is you do. Um, we, we've we've just done a series of three uh, podcasts prior to this one, all of which are roughly based around polyvagal theory, but basically exploring nervous systems, the fact that bodies are part of nature, and that uh, there's some just amazing, sophisticated stuff that's going on there, and and uh, obviously some things that are going wrong, and what what the, what polyvagal theory and other work around a nervous system such as uh, you know Peter Levine and, and and so on with the somatic mm -hmm. um, um, somatic what is it called again somatic well there's some uh, somatic experiencing somatic experiencing that's what Peter's yeah. yeah Peter yeah so those yeah. guys doing that kind of work that, that that's that's really shining some light on um, how we could maybe get back into as as I'm presenting on the podcast it's like get back into the wild you know like affirming wild as being this amazing sophisticated self-organizing complex thing that's really yeah. good so um I'm aware that your work fits very nicely into into that whole world but like uh, perhaps you could um tell people what it is you do yeah it's it's not simple but I'll give it a shot so okay. So yeah, for, for example, um, yes, um, the work of Peter Levine I've studied. Um, <clears throat> I've had the pleasure of being at many of his classes and, and such. So that is a big portion. Um, and his work really was, I mean, it's, again, a huge body of work. But the premise is that us as humans, as you know, we've been talking, are not connected to our natural, true, true human nature. Mm -hmm. I would even say, go far to say our animal nature because of 
culture, because of society, because of just the way that we've domesticated ourselves. And so his work is really recognizing that we do have this nervous system, this autonomic nervous system that becomes stuck in survival. We need survival, right? If, if, if I was to go and have an accident, I would want my system to go into a stress response to protect, to preserve, et cetera, et cetera. However, when that accident is over and I am safe, that survival is not needed anymore. Mm. But as humans, because of, again, this higher brain of ours and our conditions and not allowing the expression of whatever it is that we might need to express, emotion, pain, grief, sadness, anger, et cetera, we stay stuck in that survival that mode. Mm. And then over time, and the research is showing this, that creates illness, both chronic um, illness, things like autoimmune, depression, anxiety, but also mental. So Peter's work is a portion of my work. Another portion of my work is working, um, and again, his is body-based, and then um, another portion is through um, a woman by the name of Kathy Kane. She is also one of Peter's colleagues, one of his faculty, but she's also created a, a form of work that works deeply with the somatic body system. Again, Peter's works with the body, his, hers is more directed to places like the stress organs, like the kidneys, the adrenals, the brainstem, yeah. the gut, the hypothalamus, the skin, all of the organ systems of the body she works with. So that's also something that I'm trained in. And then prior to that, I was trained, um, are you familiar with the work of Moshe Feldenkrais, the Feldenkrais method? Other than hearing you touch on it in, in some of the material I've listened to, right. no. So, so that was kind of my first entry point in my mid-20s into neuroplasticity and working with this more mind-body environment connection, which is a big, I think, differentiating factor with this work is we're, we're not just working with the mind and the body or the body and the mind, but we're looking at how does it connect with the external world. And so Dr. Feldenkrais's work was very much around how do we teach humans how to learn better, how to relearn patterns, movements, behaviors, sensations? How do we learn how to sense better, how to differentiate? Mm -hmm. And so that work is to me really more a theory of learning than a method. Um, and so my work brings all those pieces together. Um, I was in private practice doing these methodologies with people one-on-one. -on -one. I stopped because I realized that people needed more than just an hour with me a week. Wasn't enough. Just like I often use the analogy, you can't learn um, a second language as an adult with one hour a week. Yeah. To be fluent, like 100% fluent. You need to study it. You need to <clears throat> live and breathe it. You need to be thrown into situations that aren't comfortable, but are still safe. And so the work I've created is teaching people how to really become their own medicine. That's how I speak to it. Mm. And I'm, so I'm going to put that aside. When someone comes and they have a traumatic experience or they know that their chronic illness or their mental illness is a result of adversity traumas that have never been healed. The typical model, even in my field, is to say, okay, what is your trauma? 
let's work on it. Let's go into the body and see what we're noticing. So there's like this, the intention is to work on that thing. I've kind of reversed that in the work I've done online with the groups I do where we're not asking you what is the trauma you want to work with. You may know it very well. You may not know it because if we have got traumas that are in utero, birth, early, intergenerational, you're not going to remember the events. It's yeah. completely somatic. It's in the cell, right? It's in the, the patterns of behavior. And so to try to unpack that with the person one-on-one, in my opinion, it's not that it's impossible, but it's really difficult. And so I teach people through a series of many weeks how to reconnect with this biology, um, how to reconnect with their impulse. Some, some things are as simple as listening to when you have to go to the bathroom. Like when is your bladder needing to urinate? When is your rectum needing to have a bowel movement? When are you thirsty? When are you full? When are you desiring to lay down, et cetera, et cetera. And as simple as that is, that's sort of an entry point into growing capacity. And so basically the work is working at all these somatic levels through various exercises that I've created with all those mm -hmm. methods in mind. And to me, it's growing capacity because when we have been shut down miles and we've had, you know, not enough expression, not enough connection with our internal and how we connect and see the world, our capacity is like really small. And when our capacity is small to feel and sense and express, there's no way in hell that the traumas are going to naturally come up because the system is pretty smart. It knows this person's capacity is too small we can't process that horrific abuse that occurred when we were, you know, born age, age zero to age 10, because we don't have enough uh, resource on board to deal with the tsunami of sensation and memory and panic and shutdown and dissociation that might come up. And so rather than try to work on little pieces of the trauma, we just build the capacity as big as we can. We educate people on all the theory I'm all about teaching my people exactly what I've learned in my trainings. I don't hold back. And by and large, with time and, of course, trust and them honoring their impulses, they will start to heal and release old traumas without having to go find them. And when that can happen, it really is an unfolding right? We're teaching, we're teaching the human how to be organic again, essentially. Fantastic. Yeah. And to trust that organic yeah. nature, because I can tell you, our programming, our shaming, how we were shamed, how we were told that we're stupid, you're worthless, like all these hor horrific things that kiddos are set, are told by their, by their primary caregivers, that programming runs deep. And so when we're working with this as adults, there's a delicate fine line because that, that voice, those voices, we call them interjects in the psychology word, world where, you know, someone watching this will know like, oh, you're stupid. You can't do that. I've never been good at anything. You can't do that. You can't make that much money. You can't fall in love. 
um, I always screw up relationships. So these are interjects that are just implanted in that higher brain, right? Mm. And so we build capacity, but we also warn people like those things will come in because of the higher brain. We don't want you to wipe that out because if we were to wipe that out, that would mean that you would be brain damaged and we don't want you to damage your brain, right? Um, and so we're just building this capacity so the system can trust again. And also recognizing, yep, this higher brain is probably gonna knock on your door every now and again and say, hey, hey, don't do that. And that's where we have to say, no, it's okay to do that, but you have to do it in a way that feels good as, a, as opposed to forcing and willfully pushing through the healing. And a lot of the current methods and models of healing, at least at this level, are focused on kind of finding an end goal. Like, I will be healed when all this stuff is figured out. And that just doesn't work. And right, right. Okay, yeah. So what's the, what's the alternative to that? What's the alternative to people sitting there going, this is my end goal. What's, what's, how would so, how, how do you yeah. partner with people to, to, to go about it slightly differently? I often, I say to the folks who want to work with me, this isn't a quick fix. It's a lifestyle. Just yeah. like um, before I got into this work, I was actually in the fitness industry, helping people with nutrition and exercise and physical rehabilitation and, if you know anything about eating well and taking care of your body, you don't just do it for a certain amount of time. It, you keep doing it, I hope, right? You eat well, you have to drink water, you exercise. And so we've treated the trauma process or the healing trauma process like getting, like it's an infection. I have, my two examples are like a bacterial infection or a broken bone. If you have a bacterial infection, that's a problem and you want to get it figured out, whether you do it naturally or you take antibiotics. Let's say it's so bad, the system needs some antibiotics. That course of antibiotics has an endpoint, usually 12 days, 10 days, cleans out the nasty bacteria, and then you might replenish your gut, of course, with the foods you need to grow the bacteria back, but there's an endpoint. You break a bone. It hurts, you go to the orthopedic surgeon, they fix it, you cast it, it heals, it mends, it's done. Trauma and healing it and all our, all the stuff that, we've, that we're talking about, the conditions, the domestication, industrialization, not expressing ourselves, that isn't a one thing, typically. I have yet yeah. to meet Miles, yeah, no, I have funny. yet to meet my husband did once. He does the same work as me. I think once he had a client that came and she had a car accident and she actually had a really solid upbringing, like yeah. good parents. And she was still having a little bit of trouble with, I don't remember what it was, but it was a shock trauma that was cleaned up like the antibiotics, like put it in, we do the work, get rid of those memories. Boom. I have yet to actually work with someone that simple. And so that is why for me, um, this is a lifestyle. I mean, I'm 46 this year. I had a fairly good upbringing. It wasn't perfect. I have other things that I dealt with. I had lots of shock traumas, but to this day, I'm still processing various intergenerational stuff 
Um, I'm still processing um, various things that I was exposed to that I knew I held in my body. Of course, I'm regulated and healthy, but, and this isn't to scare people because this can be a bit scary, but it's like, we're at a point in time where we haven't birthed enough. We haven't birthed any generations that have been free of that kind of adversity that we've been talking about conditions, programs, not allowing children to, to express. So there's like this interesting situation where for a person to go into this work and go into it, dare I say, well, there needs to be from what I've seen an agreement that this is a lifestyle mm. and it doesn't mean that things aren't going to get miraculously better. They will, you know, people get regulated, their sleep improves, their gut improves, their relationships improve. And let's just say someone, a student has all that happen. They work like heck to regulate their system. And let's just say, you know, knock on wood, but let's say someone gets into a car accident because that stuff happens. If they choose to not do the work to process that, that's not good. Their system can then fall back. And so as stressors new come in, as old memories come up, we have to constantly be working with this or else the system's capacity then shrinks again. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. But what's, what's, what's sort of coming to me um, a little bit with what you're saying is that um, we're in this situation, um, like you say, we haven't birthed a, a, a world or a community or so on that's, that's, that's got this, this basis, you know, of, of wholeness and, and resilience and, and not traumatizing everybody every day, you know, because a, 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 a good society would... At would, least in our, yeah, in our civilized society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's yeah. what we've got currently. So anything we come up with actually is, is just this kind of remedial work, you know, and, 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 and it's, you're going to have to do it again tomorrow because there's still all this stuff coming at you. Know? Whereas, you know, in this context that we're kind of trying to visualize or imagine, there would still be stuff happening, but it wouldn't mm -hmm. be it wouldn't be built into the system, you know, that most of the human beings you engage your life with are going to be manifesting stuff in your direction at some point, which, which, which are triggering, traumatizing, disappointing, abandoning, betraying, uh, you know, that's all, all just dead and not responding or, or whatever, you know, all of this stuff's going to be coming at us just yeah. from everybody around us because we're all in the same boat. And then you, you couple that up with, um, well, it's, it's more like the uncoupling factor of we don't have this engagedness with our surroundings. And, and, and it's just becoming more clear with, with, with your describing there that the, 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 the work that you're doing is fundamentally about engaging with the body. But that has been disrupted so much that, that, that again, you know, your memories are going to keep coming up that, that, that trip you over again. You can't just get that out of you because, yeah. you know, so, you know, we're, we're in, we're in this situation where, um, it is, it is constant, but what I was thinking, cause this, this came up, uh, in, in one of the previous conversations and, and I'm always wary when, when I accidentally stumble into using a, a mechanical metaphor for something, cause I'm, you, you usually think, well, actually, if you look at that, you're going to see that, 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 
there's a there's a snare in that metaphor and the idea of like reconnecting mm -hmm. we 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 might stumble into thinking okay so there's this pipe that's broken let's fix the pipe back together or this wire has been broken let's rewire whereas actually it's not like that it's it's weaving it's it's a fabric with many fibers on this side sorry my hand mm -hmm. this side and then there's another side you know yeah. which is which is okay it's perhaps yeah. me and my body i need to reweave that fabric there or it's me and my family or the relationships or it's me and the land you know and when you think about it like that you think okay well you know there's wear and tear to a, a fabric you know so we're not going to just absolutely weave that and it's mm -hmm. never no 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 you know it's like your skin needs to be rewoven every day when you sleep with with protein mm -hmm. and so on but i think you know what what yeah what comes to me is that that the, the way forward, this is something I'm working on at the moment, just in terms of pondering the metaphors, um, is rootedness. Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. that's the thing, you know, this stuff that's happening is above ground, the wind's blowing, the, you know, the rain's hitting you or someone comes and chops your limbs off, whatever, if you're a tree. Um, you know, but the <laughs> thing that's going to sustain you yeah. is the fact that those roots properly go down. And, and I, I, I just kind of, I hear yeah. in what you're saying that you're, you're getting people's root system re-established, you know, that, that they're going down into their own. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's this concept again of, um, well, let me start a different way. Yeah. The somatic pieces, right, that, that I work with, a lot of the people that come into the work that I'm doing have done a lot of somatic work, a lot. Like years, decades of yoga and healing work and even therapy and Tai Chi and Qigong and you name it, these people have tried everything because they've been unwell. And all of it has been contributing to their ability to stay alive and live and some of them are still really sick, even with, you know, the cleanest diet ever, um, meditation. Um, this is a very common thing that you'll hear when people have been struggling with chronic illness. They really are doing everything they can, and they don't understand why they're still not well. And, um, and these are people who are in their 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, etc. But then when they when they get into this other way of working with the system, which is about not what am I doing to my body or what can I do to fix this thing I'm feeling that I don't like, but rather than that, this capacity building and learning about the branches of this nervous system, they're really getting to go with what you said. They're getting to the root they're getting to the root of why all those other things got messy in the first place. And that's where, you know, the, 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 the autonomic nervous system is a peripheral nervous system and it touches every organ, every vessel. It goes to the brain. It goes to our social engagement apparatus. Um, it is involved with how we see the world or don't see it. Right. Um, it also is how, it's also a reason why human relationship is so difficult because we've all been brought up differently for the most part. And so then you have two human beings who fall in love, you know, because there's a spark of energy 
but they're from totally two different backgrounds. Morals are different, religion is different, how they see the world is different. And then they come together and there's this, you know, clash, this friction. Um, I think there's a reason why a lot of, um, in a lot of countries, it's not so much here, at least in North America, but you don't marry outside of your religious group. Makes you know, a lot of sense. Or in the United States, outside of your political, you know, outside of your political party. It, it, because then there's too much diverse, there's too much diversity in how do we deal with that, right? And then you have kids, and then of course, how you deal with kids is different on different sides. And so then you have this confusing mess because people don't know how to work with that because they're working with something that to me at least personally is more external. Whereas this root that you mentioned is, is it isn't just the nervous system. And often people think, Oh, well, how do you just work with the nervous system? Irene? I said, well, we're not in a roundabout way and we are because we're working with the systems that the nervous system connects to, which well, is no, exactly because, it. because if, if you're listening yeah. to your body, for example, the, 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 one of the things I'm most yeah. interested in, and I can't say I'm particularly far on the journey, but just, it's just that sense of, of what you should eat. You know, the, your body's saying, yeah. just stop and think what, what do I fancy eating rather than going to the automatic pilot of this is what I have for breakfast or whatever. Just stop like what, Exactly. That's your nervous system, but it's your nervous system as, as, as the information, you know, it's your stomach telling you that. Your stomach isn't your nervous system. I know your stomach is connected to, but, but like the actual bit that's... that's connected to, yep. No, the, the, uh, you're 100%. Like there's a, there's a pre the, our preferences are based on routine so often. And, and I know when I was studying nutrition, uh, I remember a professor saying that the typical, again, this is North American diet, but I'm sure it's similar in Britain and, and in uh, Australia and New Zealand is most people eat about the same six to seven foods every day. Um, just because that's the habit, that's what they know. If you go back to say culture, uh, Mediterranean culture is often the example, they're eating close to 30 to 35 different foods a day. Yeah when you bring in all the different variety. And of course, a lot of that has to do with um, uh, the climate and where you live. But of course now there's just food everywhere from every part of the world, which isn't necessarily good either. Um, but you know, there's just that you're right. You wake up, this is what you eat. Lunch is this, this is what you always eat. And part of the thing I've seen a lot of students struggle with, but also find huge revelation in is that they can actually choose to eat what they feel like eating. Mm. Um, one student, so funny, she had restricted, because carbohydrates have been said to be bad, you know, like don't eat anything. Anyway, and I agree that to a certain degree, we need to obviously be balanced, but she had restricted anything that was um, bread or potato or pastry, any of that, like just such huge restriction. Yeah, it's extreme. She, yeah, so extreme. And then she got into this work with me and it was after the fact and she was struggling with weight um, and wanting to lose some weight. And she went with her impulse miles and all she did for about three weeks was bake, like bake scones and croissants and cakes and pies and toast and she, and she 
enjoyed it and she made yeah. it herself and she lost a significant amount of body weight. Hmm. And did that have to do with what she was eating? I don't think so. I think it was more the, the intention and following the impulse. And she even said, I know that I can't keep doing this because I need vitamin C and protein and all these other things. But she took a moment to kind of equalize the strong conditioning that I'm not supposed to eat this because I'm trying to lose weight. And, you know, fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, just to loop it back to, to, to how I took us off on that caveat about the, the yeah. food, it's just, it's just, you know, she's working with her nervous system, right? She's, she's 100%. So this is a very, you know, it's, it's about cooking and, and eating and things like that. It's not in some kind of inner realms of inner experience or, or something freaky, you know, this, this is just very basic, but it's still the going, Yeah, going with that impulse. Yeah. And then being smart to know right? Again, this is where that higher brain, because if we're just compulsive, and some people are very compulsive, this is what drives addiction in one sense, um, we'll never stop to think, maybe I should, okay, this is, now this is enough, right? I need to, to switch. And so she had that higher brain observation mind that was watching this enjoying it thoroughly but also knowing that this isn't going to be my life for the rest of my life because that's not healthy either I mean, i'm just really interested in how that higher brain thing is partnering with with the subtle instinctive stuff you know because you know uh, you know the addiction thing is 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 basically a sabotage isn't it you know like the the the, the signaling has got hijacked by chemicals or bad gut flora or, or you know various different things but i feel sure that like the super instinctive person um there's there's a way that the higher brain thing is meant to be partnering with that um yeah. i don't know um, well this goes back to um you know this concept of what's what's the potential for humans yeah. right yeah. where where can we go like how 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 evolved can we get and i think what you just asked there about this distinction or this this concept of this higher brain being connected again, this comes back down to how we separate things all the time. You know, it's very reductionistic, very Cartesian, yeah, um, just yeah, to, yeah. to break everything apart. And, and again, this is another misnomer with the work that I do, that Peter does, that Kathy does. People say, oh, well, all that somatic work, that's just bottom up. And all the psychology work is top down, meaning bottom up means you're feeling the body and then that's informing brain and all the top-down work which is like the Freud and the Jung's and the psychology and the cognitive behavioral therapy that's all working with the thoughts and then changing the system and Peter will say and I will say that's not that's not accurate when we're working at the nervous system level we have to bring in this higher brain and I think that's where I have seen at least colleagues of mine and other forms of work lose some of the nuance of humanity is that all they're caring about is the somatic release, the emotional release, the shaking to come out of the body, but they're failing. And I'll use that word because I've seen it as a failure in some of these methods. They're failing to teach the human slow enough to, to also watch how 
the thinking gets embedded in the body. Yeah. Because psychosomatic is a real thing. Like a person can put themselves into a panic attack, which is physiological, by thinking about something that they don't want to do or thinking about a past event. And so that shows us that our mind, as we know, can influence the body. And so if we're working with the body, we also have to understand that the mind, or I often like to often say the thinking, mm. it, it also will pop up because we can't separate it. And so um, that's, I think, to go back to that, that point that you said, is like, how does that higher brain come in? And we have to just acknowledge it and know that it's there. I will never in any of my lessons or classes say to my students, try to calm the mind or try to empty the thoughts. That is just a recipe for disaster because our brain is meant to create mm. thoughts and memories and images. And if an image comes up, and by image, I mean, you know, seeing the color red or a memory from the past or whatever it is. If that spontaneously unfolds, to go back to that topic of unfolding, if it naturally blossoms out of the system, that's really important information for the human to take in and then track and follow. Because it might lead us to an emotion that's been buried or a memory that's been stored away or that procedural memory that we didn't get to do when the soccer ball was coming to our head. But if we say to someone, okay, in this practice, you're just going to do this and you're going to empty your mind and you're just going to focus on your breath. We're too conditioned as humans. So this is again, the higher brain thing to follow instructions, right? School system did that to us. And so if we're following instructions like good little humans, when that natural impulse goes up, we will then create survival stress and a confusion because some people will see that image or feel that thing and, and they'll automatically go, oh, I, I shouldn't be feeling this. I shouldn't be seeing this. The teacher said, I got to da, 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 do this, do this, do this. And then they're into a somatic survival frenzy. Some people who have a little more space and aren't as, are, are a little more maybe heretical will be like, Okay, I'm in this meditation class and oh, all of a sudden I'm seeing this image. I'm just going to not listen to what the teacher is saying. I'm going to follow this image and see where it goes. I tend to do that if I'm ever forced to do some kind of meditation at a conference, you know, where they'll get everybody to meditate and close their eyes. And sometimes I might be okay doing that. And other times it's like, screw you. I don't want to do this. My system doesn't want to do this. And I'm just going to go into my own little world and feel what I'm feeling but not everybody has that agency to choose a situation that their system is offering them or an opportunity that they're, I should say an opportunity that their system is offering them. So I think that's where this is a fine line between, I hope you're seeing that this, this work that I am lo in love with and I like and see has worked. It's so much more than just working with the somatic system. It's, it's, listening to and learning and relearning how transitions occur in our body, how the somatic experiences arise, how the brain interrelates with this, how, and then how we interrelate with the environment, mm. with others, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, uh, if, if, if we explore the, uh, the root 
metaphor alongside yeah. what you've just been talking about there. Like, so mm -hmm. the polyvagal theory tackles the uh, issue of it not being just bottom up and not just being top down. But but there's exactly. there's there's a great sort of correction to our over heady um, orientation, you know, in the West because Stephen Paul just tells us that eighty percent of the signalling is coming from from okay. down. Up to the brain, and only twenty percent is going down from the mm -hmm. brain. So it's like the brain is in charge, but only because it's having to listen so much to what yeah. this eighty percent that's coming from the body. But I guess the the, the point is that that eighty percent is the roots, you know, the the, the and the root system. There's, I've got some great pictures of various different plants, yeah. and you see how much that's underground. And yeah. how much is above ground? Like a dandelion goes down about four feet. It's, it's, yeah. it's extraordinary. And yeah. uh, it's just beautiful pictures like that. And you just think, okay, there's a lot more underneath. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a bit like an iceberg, you know, there's a lot more under, under the water than there's above. And, yeah. and so, and so um, that sort of corrective, but there still is a plant up here. 100%. And, and this plant up here is doing all the stuff of reaching up to the sun. It's yep. scattering out the pollen that, and, and attracting in the bees. So this... Bees. Mm -hmm. Essential stuff is happening and food's going down into the roots. It's just that kind of correction. But we still are these extraordinary creatures that, that, that have this beautiful flower on the top. You know, our brain thing of what we can do. Uh, but, 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 but the stuff that we can do coming from down beneath the surface, because, you know, that's, that's what I kind of see. I mean, I just reminded my, myself of, of, of different practices where exactly what you're talking about happens. You know, uh, what's his name? Um, Dan Siegel's Wheel of Awareness. Yeah. I, I, I kind of do that as, as often as I manage to stick yeah. to it. I, I find that really nice. And because he, at the one point where you're actually supposed to be going, you do your kind of breathing bit and you go, okay, what's going to pop up now? And you yeah. sit there waiting for the first thought, feeling, image, whatever, and yeah. you go, and I found that to be a tremendous exercise that, that usually ends up with me journaling what, what happened because exactly. yes. it's a sense and it leads me down something. And I feel that's come from beneath the surface. You know, it's come, uh, come from down there, up it's come, and now it's yeah. in my hard brain and I'm thinking it. Yep, 100%. Well, our, our emotions originate in the viscera, in, in everything kind of neck down. You know, the sensations breed emotion and then we interpret them as anger, sadness, joy, fear, right. surprise, right. disgust, yeah. da, 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 da. And so, yeah, like your example of the flower, you know, the dandelion with the roots is perfect. And if I think of the human, so yes, there's this higher brain, that's like the, the thought flower at the top, but then the roots, it's the gut, but it's also, it's, it's everything else. Yeah. Because even when we're faced with a, a survival stress or a scary environment, it isn't just the gut that responds, it's the skin, it's the fascia, it's the fluid system. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and again, that's where there's this, you know, we're getting there, but it, it's the gut and everything else in the human system. And, um, and so, what you said about the 80% going, you know, the pathways going from the gut to the brain and 20 from the brain down is 100% accurate as Porges has, has stated. And as we mentioned a little while ago, if we're not connected 
to that gut and we don't know how to feel it, we're going to not, that, that isn't a reality. But you've got an idiot in control. You've got this guy up the top with 20% going down. He doesn't know what the hell's going on down there. No. He's, he's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and the gut is like, the gut has the, the potential, you know, what you were saying earlier, the conditions, it needs the right conditions, the foundations to flourish and to talk. And it, it, and it's so amazing when you start to even just do the tiniest bit of listening things, it's like the system starts to cheer and it like lets off firecrackers because it is so, it is more intelligent than the survival. Our brain has huge intelligence, but it's intelligence that organic unfolding is just there. And, but then of course that brain's conditioning will also question well, this is stupid. You know, why am I touching my gut? Why am I making this sound? Why am I connecting to my kidneys? This is stupid. You know, the brain will have, you'll have that tug of war. And then the person has to use their own free will and their higher, the higher brain to say, no, no, no. Yeah. I think you, you I know you think this is stupid and that's okay. And we want to do this. So we're working with all these conditioned responses as to what is appropriate, what we've been taught is possible. Um, and not everyone fully, not everyone will be able to do the work because the, their belief systems will get in the way. I've seen that happen. There's lots more we should, we could, and, and, and uh, oh, yeah. I'm sure we'd like to explore. I'm, I'm going to have to um, wind up. I'm sure you're, but, but I, in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to tell you a story. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's just, uh, it's so funny. We, as I say, we've been covering all this polyvagal stuff, but we had this super live example of, uh, of the dorsal vagal shutdown thing mm -hmm. played out uh, in, in our garden last week. So uh, um, I mentioned that we have guinea pigs and yeah. um, my wife and I, we were, were woken up at midnight, me first. She, she, she took a couple of minutes longer so I was out there first hearing this kind of uh, when it, guinea pigs they go weak 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 and it was it was a racket and I thought what on earth is going on it's midnight they sometimes fight amongst themselves and there's a bit of a fuss but not like this uh -huh. so I jumped out you know got out as quick as I could yeah and it's quite a little way to get down so I'm hearing this sound the whole time but anyway I get outside and we've got like this wire cage mm -hmm. um well it's like a run but it's it looks like yep. a cage um yeah and I get out and look at them. There's four guinea pigs in there. And there is a, a huge adult badger. I don't know if you have uh, badgers there, but this, this thing is, you know, it's, it's like nearly, nearly three foot long and they're, they're big and heavy. And a baby yeah. badger inside the cage. And, oh. and I'm standing there thinking, How did you get in there? What the hell? And the badger's looking at me thinking, What the hell? And the poor guinea pigs are just, I see one of them running. I can't see the rest of them. One of them run. And, and, and this, uh, this badger, the, the, the adult badger just dives at the edge and somehow gets out. It, it looked like an impossible thing. It just ran at the side and it was out. And the baby's in there freaking out. Mm -hmm. well, I got down on my knees and realized that what the badger had done, it obviously how it got in, there's a little gate that, that lifts up. Mm. And it stuck its nose under it, forced it up, and that's how it got out. Baby's still there. I opened the gate and the little baby comes out. By this time, Ali's come out. She's going, what's going on? What's going on? And we've got this baby badger running around. This is a bit ex extraneous to the, the actual point of the story, but I've got to tell yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's good. Here's this, here's this little baby running around, yeah? Actually, it's not, yeah. because the baby's in fight or flight. Doesn't know yeah. what to do. 
No. But we stopped and did our best to kind of talk soothingly to this freaking out baby badger. We said, come on, baby, your, your mum went that way. It's that yeah. way. Come on, it's all right. And we tried yeah. to herd it and shepherd it. Sorry, you're not seeing any of my hand movements here. But... No, I can see, I can see. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're, we're, we're trying to, and eventually we realized this baby is just not listening to us. We're not doing any good. Let's attend to the guinea pigs. And, yeah. when, and when we shut up and left it alone, I think it calmed down just a yeah. little bit yeah. and caught the badger trail because they, they leave a lot of scent badgers. Yes. Caught its mum's trail, followed it through and out it went. So that, that, that fight Perfect. or flight thing had slightly dampened. It was able to just tap into listening to smell so as the sure. thing and off it went. Yeah. And, um, and so we look in and then I'm <laughs> absolutely horrified to see that my, my, um, my daughter's favorite guinea pig, because one of these guinea pigs has survived, you know, it's been through this whole other episode I mentioned earlier. It survived and the other ones ran out and got eaten. Yeah. And, and, and then we bought more to keep her company. Uh-huh. So the older one uh, is just lying completely sprawled out on its back yeah. inside one of the hay things. I picked yeah. it up and it just completely flopped. Yeah. And I said, Ali, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Mims is dead. You know, we, we, we have to try and figure out what's happening with the rest and I'm, and I'm fiddling around trying huh. to uh, trying to see where they might be. But then I see this, this guinea pig's back leg goes like that. And I said, well, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Just one flick. Yeah. So I, I said, well, I think it's just the nerves, you yeah. know, it's dead. But it's that last little kick, like when you kill a chicken or something, it, it flaps its wing. Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought it was. I said, yeah. but I don't know. And she said, well, let me have her. So, well, there you go. And so Ali picks this guinea pig up and starts doing that and talking to her. And, and then she disappears. I, yeah. I said, look, I'm going to find out. She says, I'm going to go inside. So I find the others that were under the hutch and, and, and one inside the hutch. I got them all together in. And I carry this, this hutch inside with, with all three of the other ones. Mm-hmm. And I come back in, put it down. And Ali's kind of having a bit of a moment there. With, with, and I thought, well, she's just sad. I yeah. And then a minute later, she said, she's, she's alive. She's alive. Uh-huh. Went, wow. So what we had there was yeah. full-blown shutdown. And, yeah. and she, had, she had claw marks on her back. Right? So I think the badger got as far as pinning her down. And yeah. then she just went. Shut down. Locked like that. And the badger yeah. left her alone. Of course. So that's that. that, that I mean, that, you know, you hear the stories about this. But it's the most dramatic example I've actually seen because we were convinced she was dead. Yeah. And she came no, back. It's, a, it's incredible. And, and that's the thing is often when an animal goes into shutdown, the predator loses interest because the adrenaline to, to get it, has, it shifts, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, it's, an ama- it's an amazing feat, the system's protection and... You know, think of that with the human system. We tend to not go into that level of shutdown, but the level of shutdown we do go into is also tempered with our higher brain. And that is so taxing because we're not just shutting down. We're partially shutting down because we're still having to engage. And then we have to witness ourselves not being able to do stuff, basically. Exactly. And then if you have a child that's in an environment where every day they're having to temper who they are and shut down or they are shut down, I mean, this is where you get into the problems. And so again, back to the whole higher brain animal that we are, 
this is where we get into trouble. And so that understanding those responses are really important because a lot of the healing that happens when people are working as adults is they realize that the shutdown that they went into or the partial shutdown was func was was not functional necessary, but it was adaptive so yeah. that they could survive. Yeah. Right. So there's just one last thing I wanted to, I mean, this is dangerous because this could open up another hour, but like, <laughs> What we've been talking about in terms of this um, getting in touch with your body and realizing that this is, this is the, uh, the nervous system going out to the periphery and, and, and talking to mm -hmm. the higher brain and so on. Mm -hmm. See, the thing is, the emphasis with um, polyvagal theory is very much on that shutdown thing in relation to the dorsal thing. But that's, that's the, the main thing that, that's communicated, that this, that this dorsal vagus is there to, to deal with absolute life threat and it will do this. Mm -hmm. You know, Stephen does acknowledge that, that actually when, when we're able to immobilize without fear mm -hmm. and embrace someone else and be just still and calm, that that is mm -hmm. also dorsal. But mm -hmm. um, I did a, I did a, a, a chat with um, Holly Bridges, who's done a lot on autism uh, around around uh, polyvagal theory and she planted the seed in, in in my brain that actually we're missing something or we're missing maybe a great deal like with with the dorsal vagus that that actually and we, we came up with just talking about this roots metaphor that maybe that's mm -hmm. it you know that the dorsal vagus is a whole depth of of experience real kind of depth that that actually the social engagement thing is is uh, is much more about the surface. It's much more about our connection with with um, with things in, in in quite a light and bright and breezy way, which is amazing. And personally, I need a great deal more you of that. It. Wish I'd had yep. a lot more of it in my childhood yep. and the rest of my life. In fact, so I'm I'm really three cheers for the polyvagal theory, it, making me more conscious of this mm -hmm. this social engagement thing. But I just feel that a lot of what uh, of what you're talking about with, with people getting in touch with their body and so on, is they're actually listening to that dorsal vagus actually. Well, there's two, the important thing to know too with the dorsal is that there's two tones that the dorsal works in. Are you okay. familiar with that? Mm, no. So no. there's the high tone dorsal of the parasympathetic. Yeah. And I liken it to kind of um, <clears throat> a, a, a standard transmission of a car you know, you've got the same engine, but then you have gear one, two, three, depending on how fast or slow you're going. The dorsal branch, the vagus nerve, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, has two functions. One is um, that deep <clears throat> shutdown, right? The deep shutdown, there's the, the dorsal, and then there's the ventral, which is the social engagement which also goes to the heart. So it's going deeper than just what yeah, we yeah, think yeah. of as social. But then the, the dorsal has a high tone and a low tone. And the high tone is that is what your guinea pig went into. You know, like, I'm going to die. Let's go into preservation mode. All the blood goes to the core, shut down, low blood pressure, low oxygen, prepare me to die. I mean, she was cold. That was the, the yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah everything just because it's really it's a near-death experience and then of course there's levels of high tone dorsal you know someone that's in shock after an accident a human for instance that isn't shutting down but is still going slow 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 
But then there's this other branch or this other, we call it tone of the dorsal, which is called the low tone of the dorsal branch of the parasympathetic. And that is the true rest digest. That's the true um, rest digest. So, you know, we're getting better with the language, but when you hear people in popular press talk about the parasympathetic and they say, that's the rest digest, like, well, that's not 100% accurate because there's also the high tone dorsal, there's the ventral, but then the low tone is where we want to live most of the time. That's where we want to go when we're sleeping to repair. Mm -hmm. That's where we want to be when we're hanging out and watching a, a funny show, when we're reading a book, when we're listening to some gentle music. Um, that allows our system to, that allows the immune system to repair, the cells to repair, and the gut lining to repair at night. And so what you're saying, I think you're, you, you're having an intuition on something that's accurate and that the dorsal, that tone is where the healing is. It's also in the social, Yeah. but, but for the most part as mammals, so this goes back to our animal nature, we need a lot of oxygen and a lot of blood because our brain needs a lot of sugar, right? To, to work glucose and so when we're doing our healing movements and lessons and more slower meditative contemplative like what you said with dan siegel's work or anything that's bringing us into this kind of gear one or neutral mm -hmm. even it's allowing the system to really listen and that's where the life that's where you your tummy starts to gurgle you know, you have a, a meal, you sit down on the couch with a cup of tea or a digestif or whatever it is that you do, and you, you start to feel the gurgling. And that is the sign that the low tone dorsal is happening. Someone who lives in high level stress, sympathetic or high tone dorsal shutdown, all, you know, they cycle between shutdown and sympathetic after that meal their gut is not going into that low tone. They'll digest, but it won't be, it won't be as well as it can be. Hmm. So that, that is the, that, that is very rarely talked about this, this high, low tone, high tone dorsal. Um, it comes from, it's what I've learned through Kathy Kane. It comes from the gastroenterology studies that study the gut and how the gut repairs. And it's literally called uh, uh, when we are, when we are repairing in this low tone dorsal way, it's um, called barrier keeping of the gut. So it's stitching. You mentioned the skin stitching up, guts the same. It stitches up at night. So there's a barrier so that proper nutrients can be absorbed. Mm. And when we don't have that stitching, that's where leaky gut comes in. Yeah, yeah. The holes are getting bigger and then that's where things go bad to keep it simple. So yes, the, 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 the dorsal is super important. Yeah. Super important. I got all yeah. excited about the social engagement theory with this, this uh, gorgeous thing. And, and, and I still totally am. Like, yeah. that, but to they all work, that, they all work yeah, in connection, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like it, you can't, and I think that's where we get into trouble when we start breaking it down 
the, the, the theorists break it down, but then the clinicians and the people who are in the field have to put it back, it together. back together. Again. <laughs> right? Because you're right, you know, that idea of fear, uh, immobility without fear, that's what allows a, a mother to breastfeed her, her child. You have to go still. Mm. You have to go into that, right? But before that occurs, there is a social engagement. Yeah. You have to tune, oh, baby's hungry. You, and then you go into that into that um, immobility response, but without fear. And but then the the gear is waiting to listen when baby stops latching and doesn't want any more food. And then oh hello. And then yeah you, yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah right. And so it's just this fine tuning that um, when we can look at the polyvagal work in that way, it becomes fun as opposed to da 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 da. Yeah, no, the subtleties of it, like we're we're, yeah. we're 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 a little bit social, we're a little bit dorsal, you know. Like, but but I mean, what what it's brought home to me, and this this is um. Well, anyway, what what it's brought home to me is 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 the idea that the the social engagement thing could actually be a little bit shit, actually, because <laughs> no, because if if you if you look at what what uh, superficiality is, yeah. You know, there's lots of smiling and nodding and, and all the right things being said. And, and to a certain extent, people are in social engagement mode. But if there's not this, this uh, underlying dorsal thing happening, it is basically shallow as shit. So, and people are maintaining a world of, of sugar-coated superficiality in that. And, and the sugar-coating is the social engagement. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the sweetness of this shallow interaction. You know, so that, that kind of brought yeah. it under me so because, because I mean, basically just confession here. Like I, I do um, sort of see a deficit in, in, in my skills to, to sometimes be cheerful and make small chat and, and things like that. And, yeah. and, and I thought, okay, so I need to become more socially engaged. And, and that's been a good journey, you know, to realize that my kids will actually respond to me a lot better if mm -hmm. I make eye contact when they talk to me. And <laughs> yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? Just that all yeah. of the, the really important and very obvious things about our life works much better when you work with that system rather than yeah. just being it, it, not in that system. But, 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 but I'm, I'm now with this insight, just seeing well, actually there is something about people that, that, that who are constantly able to switch that on, um, but don't go any deeper, which is, which is not necessarily hundred percent positive thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, in what you said there, there's a there's a misnomer too with the social engagement portion because people think that means you have to be social with another human being, mm. and that's not accurate. Right. Yeah. In other words, yeah. you can spark up your social engagement. I mean, we we do it all the time, but we haven't labeled it. Listening to music, reading yeah. a book, working with art. Um, engaging with the tree that I see out there, orienting to nature, that's sparking up the social engagement system. Mm. So in some ways we could technically say, Miles, uh, that the social word is not the best word to use for that branch. It's really, the, the branch is called the ventral vagal portion of the parasympathetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's only called that because it goes in front of the brainstem when it comes out of the brain. It's ventral, it's forward. Yeah. But what that nerve does, it, it sparks us to our environment. It sparks us to our surroundings, our sensations, hearing, yeah. our voice. You know, singing in the shower is sparking up the social engagement nervous system. You don't have to do it with the person. So it's not 
I think you, you're on to something because the people that I work with who have had horrific trauma from their environment due to abuse in their family system, they're petrified to be with other humans. Even if they know damn well the human is safe, it's not because their cellular system sees everything in the world as dangerous and everyone's going to hurt me. And so kind of old therapy would be like, well, to heal that, you got to go to uh, the club or you've got to go to a group meeting or you've got to do, you got to find a friend or whatever. And I say, if you're overriding your comfort and your safety to force social engagement, you're not doing anybody any favors. How can you engage the ventral vagal portion at home? I mean, that's where the plant example came in that we talked about. It's like, that's, I'm socially engaging with my ferns in my house. Mm. And that's not crazy. That's a way of engaging. I'm engaging with a book where I'm reading fiction and I'm imagining it, you know. Also though, when you, when you attend to yourself, you know, I mean, there's this thing which I still kind of trip over on more times than not with, with the Dan Siegel Wheel of Awareness thing, mm-hmm. where he goes, okay, now you're going to attend to yourself attending. Right. <laughs> you're going to be aware right. of your, and, and it's a bit like a drawing that a friend of mine at school did. He was quite a cunning artist. Yeah. And, uh, and he drew a picture of somebody taking their eyeball out and looking at the other eyeball. <laughs> sure. And I always think of that. I think this is ridiculous. Yeah. How can I attend to me attending to that? But, but that is what we're doing. We, we are being social towards ourselves. We are listening yeah. to ourselves as if yeah. we were another. And that's yes. an act of kindness and, and, and sociality, you know. In yes. Itself. Yeah. And that is, that is the human brain. So, you know, to go back to how, we're, how our uniqueness, mm. how we are mm. diversified from the mammal, at least as far as I know, and <clears throat> maybe some primatologists or Jane Goodall could debate this with me, but... us as humans, we have got capacity to bring into our awareness, not only the present moment, and this is what I dabble with, with my students, the present moment and all living color, sensation, vision, auditory, kinesthetic, but then we can also interlay the past memories and, and also the future. And I've worked with this with my students when we can start to bring more dimensions to our awareness that aren't just in the current moment, we start to go into what we would call, um, it's like a super trance state where you're actually, you're not losing connection with self, but you're losing connection with what you perceive to be true in the reality. And that's where it gets fun. People will say, I've all of a sudden, I feel like I'm this, this, this organism that isn't just here. And, and I think that's fun because that shows how it's, it's more than the social engagement system when you're playing with that. Mm. It's, it's a part, I think, that we actually haven't, at least as far as I know, um, really studied it. It's hard to study that level of awareness um, because it's not one thing. It's not even a hundred things. It's infinite things that we're paying attention to. Um, so I forget why I went on that tangent, but yeah. Oh, yeah. The Dan Siegel, the Dan Siegel thing, the eye. Looking at yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, it is far out when you when you slip into actually doing it rather than thinking, this is ridiculous. How can I think about me thinking about it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> when, when sometimes you just drop into it and you think, wow. You got to drop. If, wow. If you, yeah. <laughs> if you do it cognitively, it won't work. 
And that's why a lot of folks struggle with these sorts of meditations is they haven't done the, typically they haven't done the groundwork to know how to be with all of their sensory experience. If they haven't built again, back to that capacity, the capacity to be with everything that's coming up, a sitting practice will feel like hell because all they're focused on is what this is producing. And it's terrifying for some people. And a lot of people then think they're broken because I can't meditate because that's what people say I should do because that's healthy for the da 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 da. But what's being left out is the history of survival stress, the history of disconnection with the body. Um, And we have to kind of look at things from a different perspective because we're not, we're not all monks living on the top of a mountain in Bhutan. You know, we're, we've got different complexities and we've all been raised differently to go back to the animal example. Mm-hmm. And so with that, this is where I'm not a big uh, advocate of like specific steps, specific mm-hmm. methods that tell you, you do this first and this first and this first, you get into trouble when you haven't done enough groundwork with a person because you have no clue where their system is going to turn when you start to te- uh, feel right, yeah. the gut, for example. Yeah, you're opening a door, but it's not going to be, for, for different people, the other side of that door is exactly. going to be very different. Yeah. The other thing that, was, that you said that I want to address was that um, the engaging, the social engagement thing where you, you're like, ah, I just don't want to be polite. I don't want to uh, be that person that's making small talk. You mentioned that a second ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That comes back to our programming and our conditioning, you know, we've been taught <clears throat> to be polite, to not rock the boat, to uh, the things well, I should, that we I should qualify that and to say in my family, I was taught to be rude and rock the boat. So. Oh, good. Okay. So, or there's that, you know, there's, there's two yeah. sides to it, but you know, again, we were told certain things, whether it was that or this, and um, it's, it's sort of, this comes back to personal power an agency and a human being making the decision to create their own world as opposed to engaging with the world based on the personality that they had to develop to survive in the family system. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you were encouraged to be rock the boat and all that, and let's just say that maybe your true nature wasn't that maybe it was a bit of that, but a little bit more of this, but that wiring is like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I better follow that because that's what I needed to do to stay in the family system. And this is where people become yeah. really confused. I mean, it's more, more a case of modeling in this case. I don't think anybody actively <laughs> encouraged me to, to rock the boat or be rude, but it's just, <laughs> that's, that's what was modeled by my kind your of family. fairly in your face um, behavior of my parents. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> so I think anyway. that's an important distinction is, people will have quite like what we could consider an existential midlife crisis when they do drop in finally and they go, whoa, this isn't me. Where did I learn this? This isn't how I want to be. Um, Bruce Lipton, actually, I don't know if you know his work. Um, he, he is actually the man that, that did the cell research that proved that epigenetics is a real thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's in his seventies, um, an American scientist and, the biology of belief, I think, is the book that really got popular for him. 
Uh, yeah, I think I might have come across him actually. If you know him, actually. Yeah. 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 And he's he's a he's a powerhouse of a talker, and he you know has mm. said, you know, he actually, and I'll share a, an interview I watched of him of him. I think you'll really enjoy it. But his his eloquence of talking about what humans could be, how we could be living if we focused on our creativity our joy, our engagement with nature, it could be very different, but we've been told, we've been programmed into a lot of suffering, a lot of survival, a lot of slavery for many um, cultures. Yeah. And that's, that's it's, it's wired, and some think it's 100% hardwired, but he was the one that showed, no, no, no. It's wired, but it doesn't have to be hardwired, but yeah. it will stay hardwired if you do nothing to shift the narrative of how you see and believe the world. Yeah. And that, that's where I think his work is beautiful because it, it's shown that things can change. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of those scientists keep going is they know from their lab work and all of that, and I've seen it, that people really can change but they have to want to make that shift. Yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah, you just, you just start dealing with some of those barriers, whether we're calling that trauma or, or, or mm -hmm. I don't know, habits even, you know, and, but allow some actual vital contact to, to um, occur. And it's that coupling between ourselves and something else, even if the something else is our own body, you know, but yeah. it, it seems to me that once we just get that touching to happen again, this magic is unstoppable actually it's it's because it's there that's how the system works that's how the natural system works you know mm -hmm. so that i mean that makes me very hopeful you know in spite of the yeah. fact you you um you are obviously going on very long and difficult journeys with some of the people you're working with and encouraging them to that, that, that it's not a quick fix etc 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 but but like the life does kick in you know when when we yeah. um when we manage to just clear away enough of the debris to, to, to get that touch to happen. Yeah. So yeah, it, it makes me very hopeful to, to, to hear about these things. And yeah. I'm very hopeful with, with it, you know, and, and does that mean that I'm always happy and positive? No, things still trigger and get to me. And I also, I look at things from a macro and I look at, you know, my parents and probably your parents weren't sitting on a, podcast call for two and a half hours talking about the human brain and the nervous system and healing they didn't have the luxury of that in their era and the, this technology wasn't here so there is an expansion right now occurring in humanity that's really good for us yeah, yeah. and we also have to be cautious of how ingrained our survival mechanisms are that will want to keep bringing us back to what we've known and it's it's almost like we're trying to turn things 180 degrees to say no this could be really good i know we haven't seen it before but we need to find a way to create the new thing that we haven't we haven't seen yet um so i'm hopeful it'll happen i think the missing piece has been the nervous system work that's why i do it i think it does hold the roots but we also have to work with this central nervous system here, the brain that is also equally powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all good stuff, Irene. Yeah. And um, we'll carry on the journey. Yeah. We will. We will. 
So thank you for joining us for this week's Worldwide podcast. Um, and for those of you that have uh, been with us for the last four weeks, I guess it's been quite a long journey and hopefully you've, you've got some new insights or um, a completely new perspective if, if this subject is, is new to you. As ever, we encourage you to go to the Forager uh, podcast homepage, www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast. You'll see links to some of Irene's work and um, some of the, some of the um, articles that she mentioned. So now it just remains to do um, our plant for this week. And uh, it's sort of building on what I said in the introduction. So what I want you to look out for is mallow. Mallow is a plant that's in flower at the moment. It has a beautiful pink flower um, with five petals. And uh, it's quite a deep notch on each petal and, and, and darker purple stripes down each petal as well. So that's what should help you to, um, to spot it and home in on, on your local mallow patches. The leaves are, are what's known as palmate, um, so like the shape of a hand. They're, they're basically circular, but with these little, little lobes um, sticking up and, and a kind of purple dot in the center. Mallow leaves are used all across the Middle East. They're kind of used like we do spinach in the UK um, and elsewhere. Um, but they have a sort of mucilaginous thing going on, a bit like okra. They're in the same family as okra and um, actually the same family as henna, by the way. And if you think about it, the name marshmallow should give you a hint. So the original marshmallows were not made from sugar and gelatin as they are now they were made from um, boiling up the roots of another species of mallow. So the one I'm talking about is common mallow, but marshmallow that, that grows next to, the, uh, next to the coast, those roots were boiled and it gave a sort of gloopy or mucilaginous substance, which was then sweetened with sugar and flavored with other things. And there's a whole process. But that process could be applied to the, um, the, the liquid that comes out of mallow when you cook it. So you could, you could do yourself some, some green marshmallows if you look up those old recipes. Okay, so that's a, that's a plant for you to look out for. And that's it for this week's Worldwide Podcast.